0: Hi everyone for today Um, we'll skip our big introductions and hope that we don't have any new folks so we're gonna revisit this uh harm reduction psychotherapy chair uh you could all you could substitute harm reduction therapy also uh, for psychotherapy both are used in the literature and by the folks that have attempted to pioneer this uh not so structured but rather integrated uh treatment model that that draws on a lot of different clinical approaches and strategies and evidence-based practices to create this this blended approach, which we're calling harm reduction psychotherapy. Um, So what we have here, this isn't something that's, this is something we made up. We made it up for you specifically actually uh, to make sense of what you can do. You're FSP, you are not substance use disorder treatment providers. You need to treat people with co-occurring disorder System involved, they can sometimes be hard to engage or hard to keep up with. A lot of them are high risk. So, this is meant to be the answer because this is a question that we have been posed, that's been posed to us a lot as trainers and just when engaging with service providers. Of wait, what can I do? I feel like I'm not equipped to work with these people who are using substances and using them in ways that seems to hold so much consequence and risk. So again, we're not doing a co-occurring disorders training. This is definitely not an addiction treatment training. But we're talking about from a harm reduction perspective, what can you do? And what so harm reduction psychotherapy would include all of these uh, sort of these interventions you see noted up here. It would actually include some others too. Um, Andrew Tartarski in his book includes a lot on the application of psychodynamic approaches to working with people from a harm reduction perspective. That may or may not fit into what you're doing with your clients. Um, You could read the book and check it out. Uh, Is there a place to see all the books and documentaries you've recommended? Yeah, I thought about actually compiling a list of that because our reference list is really, really lengthy. Um, So I'll pull something together that's a highlighted list and share it out with you all uh, next week. Um, Great, so for today, this is what we're gonna talk about and what we're gonna work with. And I'm asking you to sort of visualize instead of the, the psychoanalyst couch. We have the harm reduction psychotherapy chair. Um, you're not seeing people on couches. The work you do, the therapy you provide, is in a totally different context. It's perhaps often in seats of cars or on in waiting rooms or in on park benches. It's it's or McDonald's. It's, it's many places. Uh, it's certainly not the the outpatient clinic we have here. We have a few different targets, right? We wanna. The first thing we'll talk about today is addressing motivation and stage of change. So, if this seems like the thing, the place you need to start with someone, which we see it as the place you should start, figuring out what what's going on from them, what where are they with their motivation for change, what do they want to change, what stage of change are they at. So The goal with uh, thinking about stage of change and then using motivational interviewing to elicit motivation for change is around resolving ambivalence and eliciting that motivation. Um, Another target might be resources. This is a really pragmatic thing, um, but you can still apply a clinical intervention here. Problem-solving therapy is an example, Um, and the goal here would be to increase the practical or like the coping skills type resources that someone could have. You might also consider DBT in light of that and improving coping skills. Um, And then psychosocial psychosocial strengths as well. All right. And then on the right, we've got risk. Yep, you have access to the PowerPoint. Uh, Sasha, you could throw that link in there again, if you don't mind. Uh, The slides are posted on our website. So for the target of risk, we've got harm reduction. uh, And that reduces risk and increases safety. And then for the target of attitudes, beliefs, thoughts, and feelings, we could use CBT or DBT, and we're talking about resolving cognitive dissonance, addressing self efficacy and shame, and treating mental health. And now this gets a little bit more into the, you know, CBT for substance use is a bit more of substance use treatment, isn't it? That's, it's a little bit, uh, we're not going to do a deep dive into that, but we are going to talk about using CBT to help people figure out what they want to do. What are their goals? How can they that understand how change, how motivation and behavior change occur and drawing on some of the tenets of CBT to support that? Um, David's going to talk a good bit about that in the second half of today. So this is what we're using as a bit of a framework today. Um, it's not, again, this is not a this is this is something we created. this is not not science necessarily here. But a lot of harm reduction is cobbling together, you know, ideas and drawing on different um, different approaches to, oh, thanks, David, uh, to create something that's really tailored for the individual and that's malleable, that's adaptive, that can, that can change based off of what that person's needs are at the, any particular time. So this applies in all circumstances, right? This can apply for any stage of change or any substance use-related goal someone has. That could be... Abstinence, reduction, no change, uh, whatever, it does not make a difference. Um, again, it's particularly useful if you're feeling unequipped, if you're feeling like, what can I do? I tried to refer them to treatment and it didn't work. What am I supposed to do here? I didn't go to school for this. This is to show you where you, you do have skills. You, you know, I'm pretty sure most of you have CBT skills. Pretty sure most of you have DBT skills. And you certainly have problem solving skills. So there am likely MI as well, but it's just how to piece these together and when to focus on using both. Um, this all comes together to support engagement, of course also, which is one of sometimes, that is the goal uh, in working with people who are potentially high risk and hard to keep up with. It's just staying engaged, doing things that are relevant to them, that resonate with them and what is important to them, what their needs are in the moment. Um, and yeah, in the middle, we've got autonomy. To remind that all of these are autonomy supportive clinical approaches. In each case, uh, we've still got the, the client in the driver's seat deciding what their goals are, and we are the partner who walks along beside them. And what's not written here is that all of this must still be trauma informed. We talked a bit about that on Tuesday and encourage you to keep that lens on all throughout today. All right the stages of change, which I know you all are probably quite familiar with, um, so hopefully I am not making this too uh, basic sounding, but here's the stages of change in a, a pretty pretty diagram that uh, goes in a circle, and uh, as we know, we start with pre-contemplation. Um, which is no intention of changing a behavior. And then we go around to contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, and relapse. And we'll talk through each of those in just a moment. But what we've got in the center there is probably one of the most important pieces around uh, substance use behavior change, and especially that coming from a harm reduction perspective. We really care about relapse being reframed. Um, And that there's a potential to learn from every single lapse or relapse or return or recycle or whatever word you choose to use, that that can go right back around and spit you out into one of those other phases and that that can be a positive thing, not a negative thing, not necessarily a negative thing, even if there's some potential distress experienced from that. Um, I'm going to look at the comment that's right here. Right, so we know that the stages of change model is also called the trans-theoretical model of behavior change. The trans-theoretical model also includes, I believe, termination as a stage, um, which doesn't really fit necessarily in this, in this uh, context. Okay, so stages of change is not the same thing as am I. It's just, it's a way of understanding where people are at with their motivation to change any particular or their readiness, I should say, to change any particular behavior. And it's important to note that people can be at a different stage of change about any specific behavior, anything. So I could be maybe I am, maybe I am in action on uh, smoking cessation, but I could be in preparation on reducing my drinking. And those two things can happen at once. And of course they're interrelated in some way, but It's not that people are gonna make 100% massive changes in their life under the heading of uh, high risk behavior or substance use and that it's uh, broadly applicable. So it's really important when you're thinking through and trying to determine with a client where at what stage of change they're at that you really get specific about the behavior because it could be even more minute than that. I'm sure you can think of examples when this has occurred. Um, So determining your current stage of uh, change informs when to use MI goal-setting and treatment planning. So if someone's in pre-contemplation or contempl- in, uh I'm going to see a comment there. I'm going to look at that in just a second. If someone is in um, pre-contemplation, they actually aren't experiencing necessarily ambivalence at all, and that is what we're trying to, cognitive dissonance and ambivalence are what we're trying to suss out in motivational interviewing and also in some CBT techniques that can be used to figure out what someone's goals are. If someone's in pre-contemplation, they, they might not even be aware of ambivalence. It might not be something they're experiencing. They are just not interested in making a change at that time. Um, But MI can be used in that case and especially in contemplation, we don't really wanna get to sort of goal setting until someone's in preparation, right? We have to really have thought through what what it is that they wanna work on and what's realistic for them. Um, And let's see, okay. Let's see what the comment is. Heart reduction is an excellent alternative to the ambivalent client. Is there exists a great deal of fear associated with never using a drug again? It allows the client to slowly get used to the idea of complete abstinence and eliminate some of the concerns about discomforts associated with withdrawals, so that you see it as a bit of a bridge from uh, a place where taking on never would be too scary, even if there is a goal of abstinence that's either held by that individual or by the provider. Okay. How are you defining relapse in the stages of change? Are we talking about reengaging in the high-risk behavior? Very good question. So let's go through an example. Uh, In this case, we've got uh, drinking as the target behavior. So in pre-contemplation, let's say it's me, I'm not thinking at all about making changes. I love beer, I drink it daily, and that's it. it. And I probably wanna make a change in the next six months. The stages of change model actually says I'm not considering making a change for pre-contemplation in the next six months. It does assign a timeframe to it I'm not sure how I feel about that. I don't know if it's totally necessary, but it helps. It helps to sort of not amorphous and hard to to conceptualize. So I'm thinking about making a change in the next six months because I've gained weight and my boss is complaining about me smelling like booze. Uh Uh-oh, not good. I may need to make some changes. My buddy told me about AA and I may go once and try it. In my case. I'm making a plan and I intend to take some action in the next 30 days and uh, make some small changes. So I've stopped drinking in the morning before work and, um, and in the afternoon. I'm learning about counting my drinks and I went to AA and it wasn't for me. I have a plan, it's in, it's, I've tested out some, some small changes in preparation, now in action. I figured out what works mostly and I'm going to stick to it for one to six months. I decided to reduce, not quit. I'm down to three beers a day during the week after work. Okay. So it sounds like I have just decided to reduce. Maintenance is when you sustain a change. Uh, so I'm staying with it. And that change is lasting for greater than six months. I love not being hungover during the week. And I am committed to not losing my job by showing up under the influence. Good. I'm glad for me. Okay. Relapse. And this is where where we can turn to the high-risk behavior or any part of the behavior. So in my case, I returned to, the, returned to the behavior change during maintenance. I went out with my coworker after a shift, and we drank 12 beers between us, I had have a red eye, which I think is beer and tomato juice. Uh, uh, the next morning, all right. There are a few different ways to think about uh, relapse or lapse. Or return or recycling, and a lot of this is more of a or the individual. So in this case, maybe we would call what I did a lapse, uh, but maybe not because I didn't have a goal of abstinence. I had a goal of reduction, and then I kind of teetered back towards some behavior that maybe. I mean, I had a beer in the morning before work, so that's not good, but i when I went out with my friend, that doesn't mean that I was drinking every day heavily again, so when you, the most important thing here is to think about what the what language your client and when you and their understanding of what that return what that instance of behaving in a way that that differed from their goal was so Lapse could be considered a word you could share with someone you're working with as like, you lapsed. That's something that is expected. And that is perhaps the most important thing to understand about the stage is it's not just like, it's not just possible, it's likely that when we are making behavior changes, especially ones around substance use or potentially um, things that include a multitude of reasons, is that you, David? (laughs) <laughs> Beer, tomato, and hot sauce. Yeah, that sounds pretty good to me personally. Um, I don't think I've had one. Uh, there is an opportunity for me to think about how to avoid having red eyes. Is what I'm getting at here. There's a there's there's a way to frame that If you want guilt, all the internalized stuff that comes with the word relapse uh, out of out of the picture. Let's talk about it in pragmatic terms. You you did something that didn't feel good for you and it wasn't quite in line with your goals. And so what is your new goal? What's what's your new goal and what do you need to uh, achieve that goal? So just getting back to pragmatic bits, trying to get all the judgment and stigma drawn out of this, this experience of not meeting that goal temporarily. So another word that people use is return. Um, And return simply means going back to what it was as it was. So um, it's important maybe if you're using this language, if someone, let's say they did return to doing something ongoing, perhaps other things have changed in the meantime. Perhaps in the time that I've gone from contemplation to action, maybe I did a lot of therapy or I started exercising or I started on a medication that helped me with some other concern. Often who we were when we started working on uh, one particular issue we is not who we are in all the other ways uh, of things that have, may have challenged us. I'm not saying that clearly. Um, but I think you know what I'm getting at. When I had this drink again, I was in a better place, actually. I was more e- able to go into preparation because I had some other things that were better coping skills. I uh, Let's say I'd started working out and I had been, done therapy. That's a great example. So I had a little bit more of a reason to believe in myself, maybe a little bit more self-efficacy, had some greater coping capacity, had worked through some things that had been maybe driving some of that um, drinking, the high-risk drinking that was putting my job at risk. Perhaps I started doing better at work. Um, There are a number of things that could change. So when we think about the conventional um, and uh, really unfortunate understanding of relapse, it leaves out the fact that people are making changes in other areas of their life at the same time and that we're never quite the same person that we were when we do lapse or return to an old behavior. Uh, Recycling is another word you'll see, Uh, return from maintenance or action to an earlier stage. Sure, it also takes out some of that judgment that comes with the word relapse. And again, that can be framed as an opportunity to revise uh, the change plan. So the key takeaway, no matter what word is used, relapse is normal it's proven to be expected, and it can be helpful in iterating towards a really effective recovery plan. Okay, now I wanna just glance at the chat. I thought a red-eye was a fast airplane ride. (laughs) It is, (laughs) it's multiple things. Oh, the English language. All right, so did that answer your question, Hugh? Are we talking about re-engaging in the high-risk behavior? It's not clear. I think there are some people who would say they they would make lapse and relapse kind of dichotomous of lapse if you use once and relapse if you, you know, jumped off the deep end and kept going, you know, if I went right back to the old behavior as exactly as it was or perhaps worse. And we do see that sometimes, don't we? Um, And that's something that I like to think is a bit of a product of the goal that was set might not have been realistic. The person might not have had all the tools and resources or... The proper stage of change or quite the right motivation at that point in time to achieve that goal later in the afternoon we're going to talk about the abstinence violation effect and why it's so critical um and how we need to do kind of everything in our power as providers to make sure there's good alignment between goal and stage of change and motivation because we don't want people getting into this situation which david will explain in much greater detail later where because someone Violated a, a goal, violated their abstinence. They just really keep going and uh, say, "Screw it." Um, and that's that's something I think we we all have seen a good bit. Um, normalizing a realistic view of progress, which is not linear. Absolutely, any small change, any any small positive change, little victories. That's that's the language we're working with here. It's uh, it's really about how you can frame and reframe. Things for your clients when you're talking with them about change, about behavior change and motivation and goals. Because uh, we know what society says. We know that, like, there's a stigma to relapse. I, I don't know if I can put my finger on it. Um, and I, I could be alone in thinking this, but I'm not sure that I am. It's There's, there's sort of this, like, sense of failure. And when we don't, like, sort of push back against that, those cultural overtones of um, relapse being synonymous with failure, we are allowing um, sort of potentials for shame and uh, guilt to override what could be some positive change moving forward. So taking things from sort of a positive framing, strengths-based, leaving opportunity open for change, um, not closing doors, uh, not getting frustrated when people relapse, and that that's a that's a big challenge, right? When you're working with someone and they're plodding along towards their goals, and you're super excited because it took so long for them to like get that motivation up and to get those resources together, and then they go back to the former behavior, can be really hard for us as, as providers too. Um, so our job is to shelve that, to cope with that, to process that on our own time and then do everything we can to reduce the harm um, for, of that internalized uh, shame and guilt that can, that can occur if people don't succeed with their goals. So this is something that's from that book I was just holding up, Slaying the Dragon. Um, William White does a really good job of not just explaining what the treatment models were and what the, the political or policy um, counterparts were to each time, um, but he also is good at describing sort of the spirit of um, how how addiction was made sense of by like popular culture and just outside of the treatment milieu, outside of our world. Um, does a really good job of including those perspectives. And part of, there's a section of this book that focuses on the evolution of motivation. So how we've made sense of what motivates people to attain recovery. Um, not necessarily what, not defining it, things like that, but just how motivation has been understood uh, over time. And starting in about like the, the mid-20th century, so like 1940s, 50s, 60s, the, we were still in the kind of uh, moral model, I would say, and maybe some there were some starting uh, some initiatives towards the disease model, but it was pretty much understood that for people to recover, they can't do it unless they hit rock bottom. They can't recover without a sincere desire and that motivation comes from pain. Um, so we're working with pain as motivation. That was sort of the, the understanding maybe uh, 70 years ago. The next iteration of this is it takes so long to get to bottom because addicted individuals manipulate people to protect them from the painful consequences of use. So there's a sophistication of the understanding that still is coming from a pretty, pretty non-recovery-oriented, non-person centered perspective, right? That we're calling addicts, we're calling them addicts, and we're calling them manipulative. We're saying that they, they create bubbles around themselves to, um, to protect themselves from the consequences of drinking. Now, is this true or is this not true? I think that you could read that from a strength-based perspective, and it could be seen as an adaptive skill. I surround myself with people who support what I want to be doing at this time, which is binge drinking or using heroin. I surround myself with people who don't challenge me on that and who understand it and don't judge me. That's it's possible that that could be seen in a positive light or or be uh, acknowledged at least as just an adaptive. An adaptive thing. Um, unfortunately, that's not what this sort of uh, this, this sentiment is about. In this case, it's really about um, considering people who struggle with addiction to uh, be manipulative, to be inherently manipulative, that this is either sort of like a moral flaw or the disease has shaped their brain into being manipulative people. And now you can agree or disagree with this. But the bottom line is it's still using pain as motivation, which hasn't seemed to work. So the third iteration of this was that, oh, okay, well, maybe we could bring up that painful bottom and make it happen faster uh, by doing caring confrontation, sort of the intervention approach. And I don't have a sense of when this became like the thing to do. I feel like. William White talks about it starting in the 80s or 90s. I don't, I don't know if that's really the case, but getting families together, uh, sitting down with a doctor or whomever and having that intervention. Um, also not, not sort of cut and dried negative. There's that that becoming something that was recommended by the treatment community was maybe also geared towards opening up lines of communication within families and loved ones and peers which is not necessarily a negative thing. Um, unfortunately, what we know happens is if everyone is invested in just one, one recovery goal that maybe the individual who is th- the person who actually should be creating the goal and they did not create that goal, there's gonna be disappointment in all sides. There's gonna be internalized disappointment um, on behalf of the person who disappointed people, disappointed their loved ones, and the loved ones are gonna get really invested in seeing this this intervention work. And if it doesn't, perhaps resentment grows. And we know that social supports are absolutely critical for any form of recovery. So there's some negative pieces there, and we're still using pain, we're still using intimidation, and we're still not respecting autonomy in this approach. The last iteration, which would start probably, I guess I'd say the 90s, um, and this is a really when the, I would say the recovery movement was taking hold and also motivational interviewing comes out. People are struggling to achieve recovery, not because of an absence of pain, but because of an absence of hope. And empowerment is key here. So this, this is when everyone caught on that for lasting behavior change, we cannot like we cannot use negative reinforcement. we can't We can't take things away from people to try and get them to increase and idealize behavior. we can't We can't take away uh, things to get people to do stuff. We need to positively reinforce them actually. We need to in- bring in hope to their lives. We need to show that there there's that this is not just um, pain avoidance. it's and uh, not acknowledge the levels of pain that they're experiencing but rather bring in some hope of something else that could be experienced. So it's it's a slight change, but it sort of means everything. It was this understanding of this um, epiphany that people just weren't gonna change when scared into doing it. All right. Yeah, yeah, I really like it. Absence of hope, not pain. Because what was missing before, it was probably just compassion, you know? This, the version two with uh, uh, people, individuals manipulate people to protect them from the painful consequences of use. Well, take out the word manipulate and like, <laughs> of course, anyone who's experiencing distress wants to find people who understand them and who are compassionate towards them. Um, it makes complete sense. And when you're looking at the, at uh, people's motivation for change and for recovery through this lens we realize that we need to be soft and we do need to treat them um, as humans. Okay, so motivational interviewing, what is it? Um, It is a collaborative, goal-oriented style of communication with particular attention to the language of change. It's designed to strengthen personal motivation for and commitment to a specific goal by eliciting and exploring the person's own reasons for change within an atmosphere of acceptance and compassion. All right. So here's a quote here from the most recent edition of Motivational Interviewing by Miller and Rolnick. This book, if Missouri cured misbehavior, there would be far less of it. So this is exactly what we were just talking about. Um, It doesn't work. We can't just keep highlighting and reminding people of of danger, of harm, of risk, of of pain. It isn't going to work. We've got to focus on the more affirm life affirming, the more positive reasons, the more hopeful reasons for why they might want to make a change. What is the book? Motivational Interviewing Helping People Change by uh, what is it Bill Miller, William Miller, and Stephen Rolnick? And this would be on the like key resources, key uh, references list that I'll put together. All right, and so some principles of MI. Uh, Expressing empathy through reflective listening. Developing discrepancy between clients' goals or values and their current behavior. Avoiding argument and direct confrontation. Adjusting to client resistance rather than opposing it directly. This used to be called rolling with resistance. It's now been re-termed to a phrase that I can never remember. David, help me out if you can. Um, Yeah, rolling with resistance I guess was seen as why are we calling it resistance? It's just how so, how they feel, um, all the same. Chime in if you remember. Otherwise, the last principle, supporting self-efficacy and optimism. All right, the, the other sort of pieces of MI that are important to highlight, and this has sort of changed over time just a little bit. Um, MI is a guiding style of communication. It still gets referenced as a directive um, approach, I feel like that's shifting a little bit and guiding is being substituted as the word. Um, And we'll we'll look at something in a second that sort of talks about the difference in uh, guiding, directing, and following um, as approaches to communication and counseling. Um, MI is designed to empower people to change by drawing out their own meaning, importance, and capacity for change. So it's it's not about teaching someone how to do something or um, supplying them with skills. It's about drawing on what's already within them, evoking and eliciting. MI is based on a respectful and curious way of being with people that facilitates the natural process of change and honors client autonomy. All right, what else? So MI is, again, we were saying earlier, stages of change wise, it really, it it can apply throughout any stage of change. I mean, when is it not helpful, even if I'm in maintenance, to have a refresher on why I'm doing what I'm doing, you know, to, to, keep me uh keep me motivated even if I've gotten the motivation to make a change. How am I gonna keep doing it? Okay, what is it? Managing Discord. Yeah, okay. I don't really <laughs> I think rolling with resistance despite the fact that I don't like, you know, you're resisting the provider. Oh, that that shouldn't be really termed resistance. It's just having a different, you know, a perspective or opinion all the same. Managing Discord, I don't know if I like that any better. Um, So MI is really appropriate at at all stages of change, but particularly in the earlier ones. Um, It's really appropriate when ambivalence is high and people are stuck in mixed feelings about change. Uh, It's really useful when confidence is low and people doubt their abilities to change. It's really also helpful when desire is low and people are uncertain about whether they want to make a change, not just not knowing if they even want to. Why would they want to? So MI brings out reasons why it helps people see um, what they might already feel in a different light. It pairs things together. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about developing discrepancy. It pairs things together um, in a different light than where they would have maybe thought of it otherwise. And also when, yeah, exactly. When importance is low and the benefits of change and disadvantages of the current situation are unclear. So it's about clarifying too okay see some comments being confrontational with someone may drive that person deeper into their shell or lead them to become defensive or confrontational also absolutely no one likes being told what to do no one likes being advised or having our autonomy at all threatens i mean i don't know pipe up if you do but i don't respond to that well at all um and i uh i'm certainly one of those people that would become either silent or confrontational absolutely to a provider Okay, so here's the continuum of styles. Um, MI aims to be guiding. Again, you'll still read things about it being a directive approach, but I think that's, there's, uh, moving a little bit away from that, I think perhaps uh, active, having an active approach maybe is a bit more fitting, um, because it's really about um, actively engaging around things rather than setting an agenda, which to me is what directive feels like. So this is from the most recent um, in my book. Uh, on the left here, we've got directing, and that's giving information or advice without permission. MI um, is big on asking permission, and it's big on giving that giving information. If someone is missing the an uh, understanding of the consequences of their behavior, let's say. They don't know about overdose risk or they don't know about um, potential for liver damage. Um, they don't know. They're just unaware of some of the risks of what they're doing. It's helpful to share that information. We have to right? like we, we have to help people make educated decisions. But when you're going to share that information and I will say it's actually kind of rare, and Miller and Ron agree with this, people know a lot more than we think they do. They're pretty aware of risks and consequences. They've been hearing it a lot. Um, now, maybe maybe that's not always the case. And maybe there's still some opportunity for educating them on really specific, specific bits, and that's something harm reduction really does aim to do, right? It is about educating on potential harms, and then how to mitigate those, how to intervene around them. Um, But we're not going to give any information or advice, or certainly there will be no agenda setting, but we're not going to give information or advice or talk about risk unless we ask for permission. And if someone says no, then we we don't give it. Um, Expectation of compliance is also a directive style. And so some of the verbs here would be administer, authorize, lead, manage, steer, and conduct. Um, So really not what we're trying to do here. Now guiding is sort of characterized as good listening, offering expertise when needed. Um, Guiding really has, there's a nuance and a finesse to this of knowing when to to pepper in information, knowing when to offer expertise Um, and not to be totally passive about it, but just to be judicious and careful. So guiding verbs would be accompany, collaborate, elicit, inspire, lay before, uh, encourage, support, and assist. These are all partnering verbs. Following is a style that we might see in a case where someone's not needing to make a change, they just need some support. Um, So perhaps if someone is experiencing grief or uh, is just trying to process something, you would follow their lead completely. Uh, It's just support. And so things you might do here would be observe, permit, allow, stick to, comprehend, go along with, have faith in. Um, This isn't the realm of MI. MI is guiding, um, and former definitions of it, again, would border on directive. All right, and so what we want to do also by staying in this this guiding middle is to avoid the writing reflex. Has anyone heard of the writing reflex? It parallels a concept I'll talk about in a few minutes. which has to do with uh, our tendency to want to overprotect. So the writing reflex is a really simple way of saying, it's our our reflex, our tendency as providers to want to set someone on the right path, to want to fix, to want to alleviate them from the distress, pain, burdens, challenges that they have and show them the right way to do things um, and persuade them to go along this path because you as the expert know it. no doubt you you do know a lot you probably can see and anticipate so many patterns of behavior with the people you serve um, so many so many risks so many uh, potential paths to success um, but all the same we can't do it We have to sort of sit back and be really careful about when we do even suggest a path um, and mostly use mi skills to elicit from a person what their path is and be uh, creative and how we do elicit that. Okay, so a little bit on ambivalence. One second. So ambivalence is the simultaneous existence of positive and negative evaluations of an attitude object. Um, We are also gonna talk about cognitive dissonance later, as I mentioned, and they're pretty much synonymous. David and I spent a while trying to understand if there is a difference. There's not, really. CBT talks about cognitive dissonance. MI talks about ambivalence. So we'll, we'll not belabor that point. Um, but it's wanting and not wanting something also. It could be wanting two incompatible things. Um, and we see ambivalence. When it is truly ambivalent. someone feels two ways about something. I, I love beer, and I, I don't like the effects it has on risking my job or my health. Um, unfortunately, this can be pathologized into states such as denial or resistance by expressing just half of how I feel. So I I love beer and that's not changing. Well, I'm in I'm perhaps in denial because I think I can keep drinking it without consequences. No, I know I love beer and I know that it has consequences. So. We've got to treat the people we're serving like they've got that level of complexity um, and that they're aware of it. Or if they're not aware of it, we're gonna help them become aware of it, but we can't just focus on one side of it. And we certainly cannot label them as in denial or resisting, not complying just because we are we're thinking that they need to cease a behavior, no matter, no matter how severe. It's uh will cause harm to the relationship and it will not be productive. It'll be completely unhelpful. It won't work if we just focus on um, them denying the consequences or risks of a behavior. Um, so what we want to do with ambivalence is develop discrepancy between the present and desired states. Uh, so where I'm at right now, for example, I love beer. It's causing me consequences. Um, those are two things I might be aware of, but maybe one's not so much in my conscious mind. And maybe I keep thinking that I'm acting in ways that are in light of my goals, but I, I don't, it's actually not, that's not really what's happening. Um, my motivation is maybe a little bit misaligned. So MI can can really work to suss some of that out and clarify and get things in a little better alignment. Um, developing discrepancy. So around ambivalence, like we can't, we can't ask people to consider motivation for changes that seem way too big or way too small. We gotta pick things that are the right size. And you all know this from doing treatment planning and goal setting, you you pick things that are digestible, right? Things that are achievable, things that are gonna build someone's sense of self-efficacy. Because if some if a goal is too big, if, it, if I'm having to sign on to never drinking again, I think someone made that comment earlier, the whole never thing is gonna seem like unattainable. Like how I, how could I do that? I've I it been my whole life. Now if it's too small or insignificant seeming, if I've been fed, let's say, maybe I didn't have all the information, maybe I didn't know um, some of the risks that were gonna come with my behavior. If it feels like too small of a change to make, I'm gonna just ignore it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put my efforts into it. Um, and the discrepancy itself cannot be too big or too small also. This is a bit of a <laughs> I don't know, a bit of a conceptual thing, but I think if you you can probably imagine instances in which it could be applied. Um, so working around ambivalence, we need to make sure the resources and skills needed for change and that self-efficacy is, or at least bits of that self-efficacy, the sort of seeds of it, are present. So if we ask people. <laughs> There's a great quote. Um, this is also in Miller and Rolnick's book. If you have not done people any favor, if you cause them to believe change is urgent, but beyond their reach. So if someone does not have the resources, and you're even maybe <laughs> being honest about the fact that they don't, or if they don't have the self-efficacy and we're not supporting them into a place where they've got some ability to activate and feel like they're effective, w- we're just, we're potentially just causing them more distress, right? So you've not done people any favor if you cause them to believe change is urgent, but beyond their reach. And I, I can't, I, every time I read that, I'm like, wow, that is such such a good lesson in terms of thinking of the urgency that we sometimes carry, that we directly or indirectly uh, non-verbally communicate, even when we try not to around urgency, Um And then still, what does it take to, how do we communicate that things are beyond someone's reach? Some of those can be really covert and subtle too. So this is a really good reminder of what we bring um, in our own sort of like, what we need to shelve that's deep within our psyches when we're working with people. And finally, if the discrepancy or ambivalence uh, or the change is too painful, it can trigger avoidance as a self-defense. So let's say someone is, me giving up beer is actually, I can't do that because then I'll have to deal with grief. Let's just use that again. Um, and I I can't do that right now. That That's, that. there's no way. I can't, it would feel like drowning. There's just no way. Um, so we can't, and of course, MI is not pushing, but we can't, we really shouldn't be poking at things that people need to sort of stay afloat at a particular point in time. Um, and this just, if anything, it's just reinforcing that we need to follow the client's agenda. But just keeping in mind that if if you're talking to build, uh, to develop discrepancy and help someone really uh, understand their own ambivalence, still, if that, if that ends up being too painful, they're gonna go into a state of defendedness that might be beyond what we can re-engage around. So just, just kind of knowing when something, it, when the timing's not right, Um, when it's just not the right fit. Okay. So a decisional balance, I'm sure you all have seen these, but this is in here as a reminder, and it's a tool you can use with clients. Um, It's it's something you can use sort of pragmatically and in a balanced way to discuss the uh, pros and cons of changing and not changing. Um, And this is also in the PDF packet uh, that would have been uh, available online for this training. So we we would write here the benefits of changing and the cost of changing, and then the benefits of staying the same and the cost of staying the same. And these are wonderful worksheets to go through for any particular behavior with a client. All right, so what are, what are the basics of MI? What does it look like in practice? One of the things we talk about with MI is the spirit of MI. And it's based around partnership, acceptance, compassion, and evocation. So partnership is you all know partnership. It's literally in your job titles, right? You are part you partner with your clients. you you share power with them. you, you reduce the power imbalances that can exist by meeting them where they're at. Quite literally, meeting them where they're at. I mean, you're you're doing that even not even if you're not operating from a harm reduction perspective, it's it's part of the way your your services work. Um, so just to highlight, partnership is something you guys have in the bag. Acceptance has to do with four A's: absolute worth, accurate empathy, autonomy support, and affirmation. And affirmation is not cheerleading, it's like validation, right? It's not, um, it's not glorifying or over, over uh, being overly positive. It's just acknowledging and validating what someone's experiencing. Um, and it, this is really where the, the ask permission before giving advice or unsolicited uh, feedback fits in. Um, this is, again, these are the, these pieces are spirit. They're not like the the concrete skills, but it's, it's really important to keep these in mind when you're practicing MI with someone. Um, compassion's pretty straightforward, of course, sustaining deep interest in and empathy for the client's perspective, while retaining a strong desire to alleviate suffering. So again, it's it's active. It's it's uh, offering empathy to what someone is ex- experiencing and trying to work to change that, in some small way, at least. Evocation is eliciting and listening closely to clients without judgment or the need to persuade. And that evocation is kind of the toughest to nail. Um, You know, eliciting someone's story is one thing, and that's not necessarily easy. There's rapport and trust building that's necessary for that. Um, But I think think evocation, there can often be too much of a focus on deficits and what the person is lacking that actually needs to be put into place. Um, The practitioner can be sort of, Seen as someone who can assess what's missing and provide it to the client, uh, whether it's you know skills or insights, resources, but this is really different for MI. For MI, we are thinking that the person has all that within them, and we are there to elicit, bring it out, and highlight it, and help them become aware of the strengths, the resources, the insights that already exist within them. Does that make sense? It's a little bit, is a little bit uh, hard to figure out how to embody sometimes, Um, but that is the way it's described for MI. All right, and then fours. You all are probably familiar with this acronym. So these are the skills that MI uses. We talk about questions versus reflections a lot in MI. Um, And if you're gonna ask questions, you need to make them open-ended. So what are open-ended questions? They're questions that start with what or how, um, they could include why, though why is maybe something you want to maybe pass over because it can sound just a little bit challenging, maybe perhaps like a, a four-year-old to why, why, I don't know. Um, I think why is, it's a valid question, but there's another way to say it. Um, you can ask, in most cases, you can substitute how or help me understand or would you like to tell me about um, instead of why. Uh, but how and what are great? Closed-ended questions are going to be things that can be answered with a yes or a no. So did you, did you grow up in a good home? Yes. Did you drink last night? No. Um, not helpful. How much did you drink? Two beers. So things that can also be answered numerically, quantitatively. Um, so like wins or how much. It's. You know, maybe we need that information at points in time, um, but we want to make sure most of the questions are open-ended, and it's you can find creative ways to do this. Um, It's a little bit of an art, but perhaps the greater art is actually reflections. There's a, a game you can play when you're learning MI around trying to have a whole conversation, and you can practice this with your colleagues. You can practice it with your clients, too. Um, without asking a question, with just using reflections, affirmations, and summaries, um, and it can be done. There's some there's some great uh, recordings of this, and some in my trainings too. But using reflections, you're either reflecting a thought or a feeling. Um, so you're you're deducing, you're reading from someone how what they're thinking. You're hearing that, and then maybe you're um, taking from that and understanding what their feeling is. Um, if you're um, able to in the moment. Um, affirmations are, again, they're uh, validation, acknowledgement that are it's somewhat positively tinged, but it's not cheerleading. And summaries, it's pausing to put everything together. So uh, double-sided reflections and summaries have to do with developing that discrepancy. So when I summarize what David's told me about his motivation to, what are we going to to stop drinking coffee Um, and the stains it's creating on his teeth and the money he spends on it and all of the things that he hates about it and all the things he loves about it. Maybe there will be some learning in there if I say all that back together in a summarized way, kind of clump it together, because sometimes when we, at least I know this, if I talk for 15 minutes about how I'm feeling about something, I can't really remember what I said at minute one versus minute 11. so if someone summarizes that back to me and makes it gel, I'll hear some of my phrases closer together. Another way of doing this is by reflecting things that seem to be um, instances where there is discrepancy. So uh, reflecting, I hear, David, that you love coffee, you love how it tastes, and you don't like the money you're spending on it. Not but, but and. So we talk about not using but because that doesn't, it's not quite as, um, I don't know, I don't quite know the word for it, but it's not, it's, it seems like it's in spite of or despite of, uh, rather, and pairs the two things together so someone can see them in a less sort of judged way. Uh, it takes out some of that, that inherent judgment on maybe the one thing that was bad, the consequence, uh, half of the reflection. All right. Is that making sense? This is sort of a quick and dirty, in my skills, summary here. Okay. So some examples here. Uh, yeah, affirmations. You've been through a lot. You're a real survivor. Reflections. You don't think the nurse who you spoke to cares about you. How, the degree to which you sort of you give a reflection that, that really... Uh, sort of interprets what the person has said or is thinking or is feeling has a lot to do with the trust in the relationship and the rapport and and how well you know them and how well they'll respond to you, a reflection that is as, you know, if if I hadn't just said, I don't think that nurse that spoke to me cared about me. Now, if David reflects that back to me and that's what I've just said, that's not really a dangerous sort of reflection to make. That's that's not much of a jump. But if I had said some other things that didn't exactly uh, it could have been interpreted differently, you just want to be careful and make sure you're being accurate. And a good way to figure out if you're being accurate is to ask, am I getting that right? And did I tell me if I'm getting this wrong? Um, I really want to make sure I'm understanding you, things like that. So summaries again, uh, before I ask another question, let me summarize to see if I understood you. We are actively verbalizing that we want to understand and that we care about all of the details. That's a big piece here. So even if it feels like overkill, sometimes when we just reflect something back to someone, but we don't pause to say, I really care about getting this right, it can kind of seem a little like we're maybe just skipping over, you know, not, not, uh, we're just conversing. It might not carry the same sort of impact. So this is, these are good techniques you can use to make sure you're having the full impact in these conversations. All right. So harm reduction is all about increasing options, right? Many paths. It's uh, it's it's really, it's really about um, whatever works for the client. And MI mm-hmm. applies here because this is how using pace, using the spirit of MI, it's how we can reinforce client choice and encourage empowerment. And we can use ORs to explore how your client feels about the different options. And so we need to move away from black and white thinking. And we most certainly have to help our clients move away from black and white, all or nothing thinking. Um, Harm reduction really focuses. Sometimes it's like you're, it's, it focuses around a problem. So if my problem behavior is drinking, the, the support I need might have to do with my job instead. It might be that I need to make some changes in some other area or targets don't have anything to do with me actually changing my substance use behavior it's really looking creatively at all potential paths to wellness in a holistic manner and understanding that sometimes things work in a geared format if i tweak one something else is going to turn and then something else is going to turn so this is a little bit conceptual but it might make sense, especially as we go into day three, which does talk about um, determining harm reduction intervention targets and how when you change one thing, it might mean that other things change as well. Um, let's see, what else to say about this? So what else about options? Kind of going back to day one, harm reduction is a movement for social justice and it a movement means moving, it means action, it means advocacy. So part of what we can do as harm reduction informed providers is create options where there weren't any. Um, and that's part of our responsibility. That could look like someone couldn't get into, couldn't get it at a hospital or you couldn't get um, a certain resource for them, but you advocated and you advocated to, to make that happen, to increase the po- potential of various options. Um, this isn't necessarily MI related, but this is just sort of a sidebar of how we how we can think about increasing options and getting really creative um, in this work alongside the clinical skills that will support that. All right, so back to MI for a second. We're not just MI, but listening, right? Finding ourselves stuck in a bind. These are some common roadblocks to listening, Um, directing, warning, providing solutions, persuading via logic, shoulding, lecturing, disagreeing, approving, shaming, analyzing, and reassuring. Are there any of those you don't agree with? Are are there any you would add? Is there anything else that keeps us from truly listening and communicating to other people that we are listening? Approving is an interesting one, right? Why is that a problem? Why is that a roadblock? Does it have something to do with power, perhaps? Like if David tells me I am going to stop drinking coffee, and I, as his provider, say I approve of that, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, yep, yeah, you're right, you should. Oh, I got a should in there too. Uh oh. Um, when I'm approving, I am taking on the role of approver. I am saying that I have the power to judge uh, his choices, um, no matter whether I'm an expert or not. But I, let's see, we've got some comments now. Wonderful. Nonverbal communication puts the power in your hands and not theirs. You're encouraging your client to seek your approval as opposed to their own. Yes, great. Um, that's just it. So that's sort of like the more insidious uh, side effect of this, right? Um, we really want people to be marching to the beat of their own drum. We really, and we want to teach them and show them by guiding them and how to do that, how to find out what they really want to do and uh, get to a place of empowerment. Uh, shutting down ambivalence that may be there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So not seeing both sides, reassuring, similar, you know, Is reassuring often something we do because we don't want to hold the pain uh, that we and the the distress and the ambivalence that we see in others. I know that's that's something I've experienced before where I wanted to comfort someone because I wanted to see them feel better because it felt bad for me. We were empathically connected and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But in terms of motivation and listening in a way that uh, is in my style, it's it's not what we want to do. And, of course, some of these others are uh, are pretty, pretty obvious. Analyzing is an interesting one as well. Analyzing can be helpful, um, but in light of eliciting change talk and developing discrepancy and helping um, someone feel heard, maybe less helpful. Could be perceived as judgment. Yeah. Okay. So last bit's on MI. Um, when would you not use MI? We were asked earlier. When would you not use harm reduction? Uh, so pretty sure harm reduction, I think, I think it could be applied in all cases. MI, not always appropriate if you're working with someone who is maybe not reality-based in the moment, maybe they're um delirious or there's uh they're currently psychotic. Um they're extremely intoxicated things like that you just might be it's not that it's gonna hurt anything it's just it might not you might be spinning your wheels a bit um, so mi is not a cure-all you can certainly do a lot with it though um, if anyone has used it a lot you've you've it, and used it well you've seen um, what it can unlock and how how it can really further your relationship with a client and really get you to a place where you're working together in partnership well yeah um, but it's just just worth mentioning that sometimes if someone is confused or um, uh, focused on other things in a moment, am I as sort of a guiding thing? It, it, it's you know you're not deciding what someone's goal should be, or, um, but you are sort of setting the tone of a conversation, right? It is a bit of a it's a it's definitely a conversation style, um, and there are instances where that's maybe just not not the right time for it. Okay. So talking with clients, well, let's see. We're gonna talk about talking about substance use with clients and otherwise. Um, So this is sort of pulling some of these things together we've talked about already. Um, What do you wanna use when you're talking with clients about substance use? Uh, You want to speak to your clients as respectfully and pragmatically as you would like to hear from your physician about your own health behaviors. Um, it's it's really critical to check all judgment and potential bias from seeping into the conversation um, and again that can be again, verbal and nonverbal and where how do we check that we check that through having a good self-reflective process and good supervision and good team consultation and possibly our own therapy those are the, those are the tools that we have right um, and training right you're here for this reason perhaps. All right. If you show genuine interest in what meaning substances have in someone's lives, you're going to have a greater chance of openness and honesty. Uh, So the best way for a client to perceive that you have genuine interest is to have genuine interest. Now, what do you do if you don't have genuine interest? If you're really not curious, if you don't want to hear about it, that's sort of the work of this for those that aren't comfortable talking about substance use or don't want to or just find it unsavory, what you can do is get to a place where you really try and step into the other person's shoes and imagine if it was your life and no one took an interest in yours. They didn't want to hear your story. Just sort of getting to a place of a bit of compassion and imagining what it would be like if no one was curious about what your life had been um, and what what you valued that can be one way to do it. And then perhaps just just remembering curiosity and uh, inquisitiveness, these are skills, these are skills. And like, you don't have to feel it 100% through, but you do have to know how to do it. Um, So you do have to make sure you are coming off as genuine. And the skills we were talking about before, checking in, making sure you're understanding the person, that's stuff you can do. Um, in an ideal world, we would all want to talk to our clients about everything that they had to share and really, really want to hear their story and make all the time in the world for it. And sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes we have other limitations on why, why it's hard to show genuine interest. Like you're trying to get them, trying to get them benefits for something and they're trying to tell you their whole life story, but you've got really got to accomplish this one thing in this, this short period of time, real things come up. Um, So it's about honesty and uh, respect and trying to do everything you can to preserve those, those bits. Um, All right. And if they're not willing to talk about current use and do, that's a good question. Do, do clients need to tell you about their use? I don't know. I'm not sure that it's always necessary. Um, I think often we feel it's, it's necessary to have a better sense of control to help, you know, find ways to reduce their risk and understand their clinical picture, uh, understand why medication A is not working or they don't want to take medication B, uh, why they're missing appointments, all these things. But at, at the end of the day, um, it's it's more important that they want to share it and uh, share it honestly. So. If someone's not really wanting to talk about their current use because of what stigma, internalized stigma is probably one of the biggest reasons they don't want to be judged for it. Um, you can learn about their history and their story. So this is when it, <laughs> you might get motivated to, if you don't, aren't otherwise, to learn about their history and story because people can talk about their past oftentimes more easily than they can talk about their present. What they were, even if it is what they still are, is easier to talk about because it, does, it can feel less shaming. Um, so engaging from a place of curiosity here is a really good technique about their history, not what's going on right now, if they're not ready for that yet. Um, you're gonna rely on MI skills no matter what, no matter how much you disagree with their uh, choices or find them alarming. Uh, you're gonna focus on the risks and consequences and benefits of choices and behaviors. So we can't stick to uh, just one or the other. And all of these past uh, sort of five points, these are all techniques to, per, to prevent burnout. This is a can be a good motivation actually to want to hear someone's story with genuine interest. When you empathically connect with someone, even someone you don't agree with, th- that's, that's something that that's why we started in this field, many of us, right? Because we we wanted to help people, but we also had a drive to connect with people in an authentic and real way, hear, hear who they are. When we're burnt out, it's harder to do that. It's hard to remember that that was something that ever was meaningful. But in on the flip side, this is what can prevent burnout, is staying connected to our clients in a real way, not seeing them just as diagnoses and treatment plans, not that you do that, but sometimes it does kind of boil down to that um, about billing and just getting work done, uh, staying connected to who they really are is is something that can help us not get burnt out. And maintaining a trauma-informed lens is a good way to do that as well. A good way to not be frustrated when we see people repeatedly engaging in high-risk behaviors that scare us. Um, And then what else we can do when talking with clients? About substance use, we need to pay attention to our language and avoid labeling or pathologizing. Um, we didn't get into this deeply uh, the first day, um, as we were a little, little crunched on time. But we have a little more time today. Um, I will encourage you to think of all of the areas in your in your language and your vocabulary. We saw Carl Hart, Doctor Carl, Carl Hart. I have trouble with his name. Uh, refer to his research subjects as addicts and we see that he is clearly a harm reductionist. He believes substance use is rational choice Um, and he's still using the word addict. I don't feel great about that. Um, You may feel differently and the people you serve may feel differently. I know that I've worked with people who have referred to themselves as addicts and that was their preferred language and that's fine. And so if they say that, I'm probably still not going to say it. I'm, there's no, in no instance I can imagine referring to them as an addict, but I'm not going to challenge them on choosing to self-describe in that way. I might ask them to share with me what they think about that. You know, sometimes when people have internalized labels, it's, it's a a piece of empowerment for them. Maybe it's a part of their story. They want they're sharing with you who they are. And perhaps it's not. Perhaps it's something um, that feels self-limiting, like they're an addict and they're never going to change. Um, so things you can explore, but we don't want to. We don't definitely don't want to lead with labeling or pathologizing uh, when we speak to people, and this include includes things like using uh, phrasings like in denial that minimize the complexities of how someone's actually feeling. So this is not just talking uh, to place about substance use, but talking to them when they've been using substances, um, which I know since you all do lots of field-based work, you experience, I'm quite sure. And so you're welcome to share your own perspectives on this. Um, I did field-based work in the past, and I also worked in sort of like congregate settings, uh, supportive housing, some transitional housing. Um, I'm trying to think of the other settings that I've seen people within Clinical offices, things, hospitals. Um, the field is, of course, it's going to come with its own complexity. If someone is intoxicated and being loud or acting out of line with where you're meeting them, and you know they can draw attention, uh, ruffle some feathers, upset some people, that's that's a little different. If you're if you're in a setting where that's not happening and the person's just a little bit intoxicated, I think. It's best to sort of take a really measured approach with it, how stringent you are with being unwilling to meet with that person. Still, really thinking about the purpose of the meeting, um, what you're hoping to achieve, and the benefits and consequences of saying I'm not going to meet with you right now because you're intoxicated. So, what do people do? Do you, if you meet with someone and they're under the influence of a substance, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's methamphetamine? Maybe it's not a substance. Maybe it's uh, a form of MAT like methadone, and they're just nodding off. What do you do? Do you reschedule? Do you try and make the best of it, try and build some rapport? Do you stay with them to look out for their well-being? What works? What are the challenges there? Depends on their level of intoxication. Try to reschedule, assess for safety. Assess for safety, then meet. Okay. And I want to respect that every agency is going to have their own policy on this. Totally fine. Can't continue with the therapy session because they can't provide consent. Okay. Yeah, so this is not a black or white thing. And this is goodness. Okay. So maybe there's some case management tasks that could occur, right? You could get some basic stuff done. Um, Your agency policy is in the session. Okay. Make sure they're okay. Better wait until they are sober to consult. Okay. I would still some people somewhat intoxicated you could still get some things done perhaps you could gather some information um, around you know maybe some maybe again some case management style tasks um you have the potential to hang out with them and stay engaged and show them that you don't mind while also communicating my agency policy is to work with people when they're sober or uh this is a safety concern so can we schedule in the future a time when you haven't used Tell me what time that would be, and we'll we'll try and come up with something that works for both of us. Um, there's still a potential to learn in that environment, to pay attention and observe how substances affect them. And then at some point later in time, you might be able to ask for permission to give that feedback and say, hey, so I spent a little time with you the other day. Uh, you may or may not fully remember it. I wondered if I could relay some, some, some bits that I observed. That takes a lot of trust, but you could ask that for, you could ask of a person if they'd like to hear that, because that might be information that's helpful to them. Um, negotiating meeting times and amount of use. Maybe someone that can't meet with you unless, if let's say, drinking again is uh, the, the the substance that here. Maybe they need to have a beer, and they're not going to be drunk, but they'll have like an edge taken off, and that's okay. Just maybe not 10 beers. Um, so negotiating amounts. Um, And again, keeping in mind that some uh, MAT side effects will mimic intoxication, and we need to be clear about if someone is actually intoxicated versus just uh, impacted by a medication they're taking. And that's not just medication-assisted treatment. That's not just methadone. That can be other psychotropic medications, too. Um, uh, Right, so providing trauma-informed care involves making sure you're offering safety and containment. if someone is going into sort of like deep emotional stuff or let's say a trauma history, you wouldn't you would contain that. You would find a way to say, no, okay, let's let's say that for another day. I really want to uh, res- you know respect your boundaries and you, you can use whatever language feels fitting. Um, but also saying that some people might not be able to participate in services without some little bit of whatever it is that they use. Now I'm gonna glance at the chat what else people have said. Better to wait until they are sober. Informational. Yes. Yeah. Reschedule the session. Build a relationship uh, in the session and follow up when the client is sober about rescheduling the session. I agree to not brush over the situation but bring it up in a meaningful and helpful way to the client to help prevent similar occurrences. The client is not receptive due to their current state. It might be a good idea to use policy as a way to remove oneself. I agree. That's a good way to make it neutral so it doesn't come off as judgmental. Realistically, some of our folks are hardly ever completely sober. So yes. Yeah, totally. Um, and we got to think of the relativity of that. In fact, maybe five beers for one person is like, you know, half a beer for, for me um, it might have the same effect based off of their tolerance. Um, it's another challenge if they drove to a session and are intoxicated. Yep, and this is when the rubber hits the road, right? We're talking about all of this stuff in uh, theory, and then in practice, man, there can be some tricky situations. And what what do you do then? Oh, goodness, park their car for them and take their keys, and then find them later. What are you supposed to do? Uh, I'm not. You can tell me what you did do. Uh, with some clients, we, we would cancel the session until they're sober. We would never get any work done, especially those who consume cannabis. Any work depends on the level of intoxication, but at the very minimum, we can assess for safety. Yeah, yeah, it's such a, it's such a gray area. Vanessa, you say you've worked with members under the influence, but I've had one member who was getting more and more agitated and disrespectful. That I told her, "Sorry, if you're going to be intoxicated like this, I can't work with you right now." Please come back tomorrow when you're sober because we can't get anything done. Um, you know, and I, I don't know if that was helpful or unhelpful. I think de-escalation and sort of safety and de-escalation trainings would would be really what's appropriate to, to focus on this topic in full. Um, you know, I think we we do have to sort of walk on eggshells and be careful when we're ending a session with someone uh, because of their intoxication or their agitation, you know. Uh, we all know that there's so many responses that can just increase the agitation, and then we've got like a real problem on our hands um so a topic for another day, but I am only encouraging just like thinking about it carefully, thinking about what you can get out of that time together, and then how you can really directly communicate with a client at a point in time when they're sober ish. Uh, to negotiate how to provide services in a in a way that works for both of you. Response to someone that claims it's unethical to provide services to a client under the influence. I think there's going to be great variability in what people see as ethical and unethical. You know I coming from goodness uh an agency in New York that was had a huge uh, number of peers um, that would have been a really unpopular opinion to consider it unethical, because plenty of the people who were peer identified, you know, I, I'm not. I, I, there's possibility that they were still actively, actively using if substance use had been a challenge for them or uh, I knew some who were struggling with like getting their methadone dose right during the day. So, you know, there was a fine line between, some of them were clients of the agency for other programs as well. Um, who gets to decide what's an unethical? It's a very personal decision, and I think we as providers can only decide it for ourselves, and we have to also pay attention to what our agency policy is and maybe the code of ethics that, that govern our professions. But it's certainly um, an unclear and uh, controversial issue. Consent would depend on what the client agreed to and signed on the consent form. Yeah. Yeah. Not an easy topic. So we'll move away from that now. Thank you all for your for your input. All right. So MI and harm reduction, our engagement strategies, sitting there with the client and not getting a lot of stuff out of them, but just, just hanging with them, looking out for them, making sure they're safe. Also, that was the last bullet point on that slide. Just as an anecdote, I mean, I, I can't tell you when I worked at a congregate housing site in the Bronx, we had no one, no one should loiter in the lobby uh, in this big building rule. Now, but people would come down and loiter because they wanted to engage with people. They wanted to hang out in their lobby because they were all just stuck in their apartments otherwise. And if they were substance using, they might've wanted to just socialize like people drinking at bars do, you know, not, not a crazy thing. Um, But still, the rule was there at the same time. Was it a rule that was enforced often? No, like that, the lobby was frequently where we would look out for people, where I would ask the front desk staff to keep an eye on someone and make sure they weren't showing signs of overdose if I knew they were an an opiate user, for example. Um, Or if they had chronic health conditions, if they, let's say they had diabetes and were drinking, um, you know, looking out for them as well, keeping an eye on them. So sometimes what the rules are and then what what the practicality is, is very different. it's another example of that. But yeah, you want to, if, if you're worried that someone's uh, at, at health risk for whatever whatever their uh, risk factors may be, you want to keep an eye on them. And you definitely want to get um, support for that if, if you're concerned. Okay. All right. So engagement. Why is engagement critical? Past the outreach and engagement phase of working with a client. I don't, this is, kind of a rhetorical question. Um, It is important is the answer, not why. Um, We have to stay engaged. People are going to wax and wane in terms of their understanding of why they're in FSP and why why they're based off of so many things, right? Based off of how how their mental health is, what matters to them, what their priorities are at that point in time, what their resources are. That's all going to shift over time, so Mm -hmm. MI and harm reduction can sometimes be the only things you can do therapeutically or as as a supportive intervention with someone um, if they've sort of disengaged, right? And if you're trying to to get them back engaged with you uh, in a meaningful way. Um, Yeah, and this is, again, policy and DMH's expectations for you all providing services this is one of these things that doesn't necessarily always translate. I mean, in the dream world, you would keep everyone engaged. You would never disenroll someone based off of uh, lack of engagement. You would, because you would look out for them. You would you would keep them, you would keep them enrolled until you could possibly engage with them and, and wait for that sweet moment to come uh, for those that are disengaged. And it doesn't actually work that way. Uh, but if you are able to, if you can find ways in your programs to do that, there is benefit in it for many people. Um, even if they're not clinically improving, even if they're not meeting any of their goals, um, you know, they, their primary diagnosis isn't getting dealt with whatsoever. If you can find a way to keep them engaged, that's going to be better in the end than not. Um, and it might be that they, they're not, FSP isn't appropriate for them. Maybe they need a higher level of care, who knows. Um, but we have to keep in mind that high risk individuals can be worse off if they're disconnected. So we wanna work on keeping them alive. And that's not necessarily what your directive is in FSP, but it's a perspective to think on when you're considering whether or not to have someone continue to take a slot in your program. And I know that's not an easy decision either. So I certainly don't wanna make that seem that way, but it's just something to consider. Sometimes continued engagement is the only realistic goal of treatment. And perhaps, you know, perhaps billing, Billing and program structures just need to catch up with this reality, you know, they're not built that way they're built for for outcomes and they're going to be shifting more towards value based. uh, um, uh, Value based uh, reimbursement structures also but. There's ways. uh, Ways to sort of advocate for keeping people on if you think there's a possibility that they they could re engage in services and that you could uh, mitigate some risk by keeping them enrolled. All right. So summarizing a little more, um, benefits of open dialogue about commonly stigmatized behaviors, and this goes beyond substance use. So you won't be engaging in a power struggle with your participants, which you will never win. Um, I can't remember who it is that talks about dropping the rope, the the tug of war rope of power. Um, that that's that's the best thing we can do, um, and that that always comes to mind. You. You, creating a space of trust and open dialogue is, yeah, very important trust relationship and a bond. Yeah. Um, from social worker. <laughs> I was about to say, your first name's social. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's so critical. Um, it sets the stage for any movement to occur. Um, so we want to not get in power struggles, of course. Uh, you want to actually know what's going on. So that whole, like, someone might not talk about their current use, but they'll talk about their past. Man, when you get to that moment where they come and tell you about their current use when you thought you'd never get there, and then you know what you're working with, that opens up a lot of doors to effective intervention that still can occur from a harm reduction perspective. Still, it just you will be keeping that person so much safer if they trust you enough to tell you their truth and to come tell you, hey, I lapsed, I relapsed, I returned, I recycled, whatever, whatever their language is, I used again, um, or... I overdosed last night and I'm really scared, um, or I feel coerced by my partner, I'm I'm definitely dependent on the substance and they provide it for me, I don't know what to do. You know, all of a sudden you have so much more information, um, but if we talk only about I I, re, I read or I heard that you use substances, do you want a, a rehab referral? And we don't listen to their story, we don't build that trust we will miss so much that we need to know to be able to serve them properly. Um, we are actually reducing, we're, harm reduction, just having open conversations about substances is a harm reduction intervention and it's because it's anti-stigma. So you're reducing the psychological impact of stigma and trauma just by conversing in this manner. And I know that seems a little hairy fairy, but it, it it's real. Um, you are undoing a lot of, of Uh, damage from stereotypes, from culture, from all the messaging that they have received around how they are wrong and bad uh, for being a substance user. This is really important. And that's something you can actively discuss with them. Uh, Authentically connecting with clients can help prevent burnout for you. I already talked about that a bit. All right, more summarizing. So there's no magic toolbox. Harm reduction is imperfect. It's an approximation. It does not cover everything, but nothing does. Um, It is cobbling together the the best of every applicable intervention possible um, and trying to be adaptive, trying to be flexible, uh, trying to increase options via creativity and advocacy wherever possible. And always focusing on autonomy support and following the client's lead. So we explore clients' preferences and priorities not just mentally. We use MI. We recognize the client's readiness for change in areas of ambivalence. We use stages of change there. Uh, we focus how to on how to increase options. We talk with the client about them. We support them. Uh, we follow through on next steps. And this is really important though. It might not even need to be said to maintain trust. If you say you're going to do something, you do have to do it. Um, Simple. All right. And then you repeat and then you'll get you'll go through this cycle many, many, many times, perhaps endlessly. And that is the reality of harm reduction. It it doesn't have an end point. It doesn't have an end goal. It is just an adaptive relative approach to working with whatever is going on for a person at any point in time. Managing expectations and coping with client risk. Not easy. Um, Some tips. Do say when you don't know what you don't know. Roll with harmony when everything goes sideways. Do celebrate the wins, be overt about this. Do set limits, Uh, be real about your boundaries and limits. Uh, Do keep your humor, do learn from mistakes, and do take care of yourself. Uh, Avoid becoming a rescuer, easier said than done also. Avoid taking it personally, very easier said than done. Avoid the assumption that you and the participant have the same goals. Avoid assist- insisting that work, work for you is the answer for another person and avoid trying to do this alone. Those ones on the right, those five, I mean, we could spend an hour on just those. Um, we're going to focus just on kind of the the uh, avoid the assumption that you and the participant have the same goals and the avoid becoming a rescuer and taking it personally today. Um, but avoid trying to do this alone. We hope this is, uh, as things move towards a much more sort of team, team-based approach within FSP, and hopefully this is already the way you're functioning. You can't do this work alone. You have to have support and consultation. You have to be working with uh, supervisors and team members that have your back and that you can consult with openly. It's really critical. This is a lot, a lot to carry working with folks who are really high risk. Um, avoid insisting what worked for you is the answer for another person. I think we know this, um, and it's really hard not to do this. We feel our own stories and our own challenges and successes so, so vividly, and it's hard not to project those onto other people, of course. Um, but it's something we can be mindful of and uh, try and try and manage. All right, so if you've been to, any number of our trainings here at PMHP, you've probably seen this slide. Uh, This is our combo, dignity of risk and the overprotect neglect continuum slide. Uh, I will try and explain it and not take too much time in doing so. All right, so the dignity of risk, have people heard of this? Have they heard of therapeutic risk maybe, if not dignity of risk? So this has to do with, and this goes back to talking about the benefits of relapse or return. Um, we have to be able to have autonomy to make our own decisions, and we have to make mistakes because that's how we learn, right? So when we take away people's right to choose their own path, we take away their potential to learn, and we also take away their dignity. Um, there's dignity in failure. There's there there's a human there's a human piece to that that it's it is just that's that that level of self-determination is just something we seem to need psychologically um and it's it keeps us intact it keeps us well and it also keeps us learning so uh you think about the dignity of risk um oh gosh COVID is such it's so ripe for for instances of this right now um you know my mom is a great example she's in her mid-70s she has diabetes she went to go see people last week for thanksgiving and this was very much against her social worker daughter's uh, best interest she in fact did not tell me that she was going i found out when she was there and i realized why she wouldn't tell me and it's because i had advised her not to go and because of course the risk is so high and i realized in that moment i'm like right now the dignity to to do this to choose for herself because she's been pretty isolated through this time, it was more meaningful than the risk that it came with. Now, will she learn from that? Maybe it's not a great example because hopefully that's a novel situation, but we are seeing it a lot. We're seeing it outside of our work. We're seeing it in in daily life. Another example of dignity of risk, like, you know, if. if if someone's ever told you maybe not to to move to a city to take a job to get into a relationship and you didn't listen to them you did it anyway maybe it didn't work out would you have learned as much as you as you did if you had listened to the people the naysayers someone who said don't do this he's not right for you you'll hate uh whatever city that job seems bad no this is how we learn so this has to be allowed we have to support this in our work with clients Um, Now, the overprotect-neglect continuum is something that's slightly different but uh, reflects this consideration of dignity of risk. The overprotect-neglect continuum has to do with our sense as providers. It's it's similar to that writing reflex of either wanting to overprotect people and intervene and tell them the right path or neglect them, actually. Maybe just think natural consequences, let them do what they want, they'll they'll learn on their own. Um, Burnout maybe looks a little bit like neglect. For some people can look like overprotect. Burnout, wanting to just mitigate risk and control uh, can come come out that way, but that sort of depersonalization looks a little bit like neglect um, that can occur with burnout. So what we have here is this idea that we want to stay in the middle. We wanna stay in this guiding place. We don't wanna take away people's right to fail. We don't wanna take away their opportunities for learning. Uh, You learn a lot through trial and error. Yes, you do. Um, We also, we don't wanna leave them out in the lurch and knowing that we could have done more, knowing that we could have uh, done our due diligence and trying to keep them safe, provide them with resources. We can't do that either. And so this is some really hard work to stay in the middle and also work with people who are consistently in really risky situations where y- you care about them, you you are empathically connected to them, and they are going to do what they're going to do. And harm reduction is a lot of, it's, it's, it's not neglect, it's not just sitting on your hands and waiting, it's actively engaging people and trying to really creatively think of how you can intervene with them around risk reduction and harm reduction, but it's also not overprotect. It's not controlling people. So what we do in the middle here is we talk about both risks and benefits. We share information with permission. We allow for the dignity of risk or the right to fail. And we explore and reinforce where the client has choice. We try and show them where they do have options. We, we don't stay over here and neglect and not, not have those conversations. And just having the conversation is often what we can do. focusing on assisting with interventions and avoid expectations yeah and we can't we're going to have expectations we're going to have hopes we are going to have gosh we're going to have our hearts broken sometimes by clients when we really believe they were going to get to a stable place and then things things took a, a left turn it is there's no way There's such beauty in having that hope and having those expectations in a way. The key is to not let them impact your ability to continue doing this work via burnout or to bleed into the relationship with the client. That's the magic of it. So again, how do we do that? Our writing reflects our beliefs-based agenda also. That can can be a piece too. Or implicit biases um, sometimes take over covertly, right? Mm Uh, We've got to remain aware. We have to do that by uh, engaging, again, in supervision, consultation, therapy, um, whatever it may be, continued training. Uh, We've got to find uh, where we might have countertransference and manage that. Um, We have to check our expectations around client change. And again, the service delivery system is not set up to have you succeed. (laughs) It's not set up for you to achieve those outcomes with the real things that people are dealing with, the real challenges, the real barriers, especially FSB clients. I mean, it's just, it's not, um, it's set up to say you need to do more, not that you're doing enough. And that this is, the reality is that this is just hard work and you're working with people with really complex challenges. Um, You're not gonna get that reinforcement there. Hopefully you're getting it from your supervisors. Hopefully you're getting it from your peers and colleagues. And hopefully you're getting it here. That's part of what we hope to convey. Um, but when your expectations are just really divergent from reality, uh, you can use radical acceptance. So this is a DVT skill, um, and it's, it's about letting go of the illusion of control and a willingness to notice and accept things just as they are right now without judging. So if you've got, as you can see on the right here, um, overprotect neglect awareness, you know where you're at on that continuum. You've, you've checked yourself, you've done it with some other folks your colleagues, um, and you're practicing radical acceptance for the the distress that you experience, uh, perhaps from people who are just not changing and that you're really worried about, that's the best you can do. And that's the best you can do to keep yourself sort of out of a place of burnout, hopefully. Boundaries are also something you can do. So we took a little bit and we've talked a bit in prior trainings about doing with versus doing for and who is responsible for whom and to what extent. And of course, this is uh, there are hard and fast areas of this, if someone's at risk of harm to themselves or others or really disabled, um, we do take autonomy away from people, of course, to protect them, right? Like That's, that's not overprotect, but we want to be judicious and, and really thoughtful about when we are doing those things that are autonomy uh, reducing. Um, but boundaries, otherwise, have to do with uh, setting expectations around treatment. So setting expectations around frequency of meetings, context of them, having really careful, again, clear goal setting and treatment planning that's reflective of someone's stage of change and what they really want and their motivation. That's stuff that will keep you from getting expectations that aren't in, not that aren't in line with what was ever possible, right? Um, that's just another sort of thing you can do to keep yourself not as stressed, a little bit more balanced. Um, okay, I see you saying, because you're empathically connected to your clients, it's important to not let our hurt hurt them. Yes, even if our hurt is about them. And isn't that so hard? Gosh, it's so much to carry. It is, And we have to have a place to process that. Um, so, yeah, this it, this is sort of a... The boundaries piece can be with clients. It can be um, you know, expectation setting with them. And then it's also with yourself, knowing when you've done enough, um, knowing what that limit is. And we we cannot be islands. Again, I'll keep harping on this. We have to consult with other people, because otherwise we might not know. And we'll question that. And no one wants to go to bed at night wondering, did they assess properly? Did they do enough? Did they intervene enough? Did they mitigate that risk enough? We wanna go to bed saying, I am human and I, I used all the resources possible and I am gonna go to bed with clear conscience. We wanna do that. We wanna enable you, um, especially as trainers, to be able to do that too. All right. So this is a year of acknowledging where we do not have control, <laughs> um, being faced with some, some grim realities some scary unknowns. Um, Control is a complete illusion that humans tend to grasp for uh, in times of stress and in times of duress and another application of radical acceptance is really around just coping with life right now and accepting the unknowns, accepting that reality is a bit uh, challenging. Uh, I can plant and you may water but increases beyond our control. I love that. All right so radical acceptance in practice challenges, self-protective or trauma-influenced instincts, right? Um, I, I have to have control because I've been traumatized around this particular thing and there's no way I'm going to give up that control because um, I am I'm, I'm too, I'm too distressed. Um, we can ask ourselves what is the risk in accepting this and what is the risk of not accepting this? Oftentimes we'll find that non-acceptance will cause us more distress than just acceptance. I really don't agree with this. How can I accept it? Acceptance is an agreement or endorsement. So you do not have to agree with your substance using client's behavior. You do not have to like drugs. You do not have to think that they should be legal or illegal or anything. It's just accepting that the person is doing a thing. Why me? Every event has a cause. Identify whether it has anything to do with you or not. I definitely have experienced some why me's in the past year. Um I had a, a wedding-ish thing, a wedding reception in England that got canceled and had a, a moment of why me and then realized it had nothing to do with me and was immediately had that feeling resolved because <laughs> nothing bad was happening to me. It was simply uh, simply just a thing that could be accepted. I don't know that I can sustain the discomfort of really embracing such a painful reality. Okay, so you only have to accept the current moment and all moments following. You can take each one as they come anew. This is, these are, of course, things that you can share with clients. Radical acceptance is a great skill, a great distress, distress tolerance skill um, from DBT. So certainly think of it in that light, too. But for yourself, if you don't know if you can take the stress of worrying about whether someone is going to overdose in some place where you can't find them or um, whatever is going on, um, You just have to accept it for that moment and know that feelings change. Uh, The physiological aspect of of, um, emotion and feeling shifts over time, Um, minute to minute, 10 minutes to 10 minutes, and it will change. And you just have to cope with each moment as it comes. All right, we're gonna wrap up this section and take a break. So in summary, we wanna check and shelve our agendas, uh, be humble in light of that, it's hard sometimes. I know uh, I have so many great ideas about what people should do. I gave a good example earlier of my mom and at that, my agenda now has to go sit on the shelf over there for, probably for the next couple months until I get back in a place of being trusted to be <laughs> informed again. Um, we have to remember the dignity of risk. Uh, we have to expect ups and downs, growth and relapse, hope and despair, starts and stops, and offer acceptance and compassion for each of them. Uh, We need to follow through and be consistent, Uh, secure, and healthy attachments are very healing, and they rely upon this, right? Um, We need a self-reflective practice and support, and we need to practice radical acceptance for the things that we cannot change.
1: Great. Thank you. And thanks, Elizabeth, for doing such an amazing job with all of that information. We know that there's so much content in this training. I think we had mentioned on Tuesday how hard it was to sort of contain it to to three days. So thank you for that. And we are now going to dive into a little bit of treatment planning and intervention. And that's what we'll spend the next um, uh, hour and 25 minutes or so talking about. Well, definitely until 430, no later than that. And I, I know I'm skipping a little bit of a step when we talk about treatment planning and actually providing some sort of intervention. We're kind of skipping that uh, assessment component. So uh, we're just going to touch on this really quickly now. And then tomorrow uh, or I'm sorry, uh, next week on Wednesday, um, we're going to go into a lot more detail about this sort of paradigm and this perspective of of assessing. So uh the drug set setting is a it's uh, it's a way to 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 assess and to perceive the risks and the overall situation of what somebody might be experiencing. Now, as we said, we, we're primarily focused on substance use and drugs, but this could really be applied to any behavior that 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 the individual identifies as wanting to change, or that we identify as potentially harmful, and that we need to 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 be mindful of and 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 step in as necessary so when uh when looking at drug set setting, the authors of let me grab this book, I believe it originated from Pat Denning and Jeannie little um but they did a wonderful sort of uh, overlay or uh, kind of mapping on, it's like, no pun intended because it's called map, but they kind of mapped this overlay on how you could use the drug set setting uh, triad as really assessing from a harm reduction perspective what some of the behaviors are and what some of those possible harmful consequences can be. So at the top, you have drug. And so if we were just focused on substances, you know, and and we, uh, and we've identified that, you know, maybe a problematic drug use is crystal meth. So there the, the drug would be crystal meth, and it it just doesn't end there though, of course, um, when assessing and if we have that relationship with an individual to to ask all of those questions, because we we don't want to ignore that, um, hopefully you'll be able to get information such as frequency, amount, methods, patterns of use, um, all of the specifics that go around that specific substance, so that way you have a good idea um, for what type of risk might be associated. Um, You want to be able to assess the level of abuse or dependence. um, And, you know, look at it from a continuum, not so much from a pathological perspective, not so much with the idea of, okay, I want to be able to diagnose this individual with something from the DSM-5. Not so much of that, but More so, so you have a good understanding what have been some of those negative consequences that they've experienced. Does it seem like the user has any level of control over their use? And, um, and of course, we also want to put in any prescribed medications, again, like current and past use and, and level of compliance. So we kind of bundle that section under the drug piece. Now, when we move to the set, and Elizabeth will explain this next week, but set is really the context around the around the the, the substance use or around the behavior that has been identified as problematic. And context not so much the Physical context. That's going to be in the next section, but more about the uh, the psychological, emotional, and social context. So here, you have how much motivation and what sort of expectations does the individual have by engaging in that behavior. What is the individual's stated goals did they did they even identify that that problematic behavior through our eyes of course, if we 're saying that we feel that it 's problematic are are they saying they want to change anything about it? This is all part of the set again, that building the context and this is where we apply a lot of the a lot of the elements that Elizabeth uh, just went through very thoroughly about stage of change, what's their level of self-efficacy, and have they been in treatment before? What's uh, what's their treatment history? We, we also want to look in this as the, if they do have any psychiatric diagnoses, if there are any medical problems. Um, and then, of course, where are they in regards to development uh, in their life? What sort of experiences have they had? Um, any personality traits? So again, we want to create, we want to understand to the best of our ability the that psychological um, set that surrounds the individual's behavior, because of course the substance itself isn't going to tell us a whole lot, and as we go into a uh, a vignette in a little bit, you'll see how important it is to look at those other factors around the drug use. So then finally there's the setting, and so this is more that um, this is more of the uh, con- contextual more of the physical uh, contextual component. Uh, and and then there's an element that talks about the therapist concerns. So uh, first looking at the setting of like, where do they use or where do they engage in this behavior? And do they do it with other people? Do they have a support network? Or do they have a group of friends that they uh, that they prefer to use with or engage with in whatever behavior? behavior? We're identifying as problematic. Um, we, of course, want to look at uh, the support systems that might be in place. Uh, you know, the quality of that support system. Clearly, if you're working with somebody who lives in an encampment in LA. Um, you know, th- that's that's gonna play a big role. Um it's gonna play a role in like are are they able to use in a safe environment. Um their support system may uh may be comprised of other individuals within that encampment. Um or maybe they have family members um that are aware of their use. So uh again support system can look very unique for, for each person. And then finally, and this is the piece that's a little bit outside of that, um uh, Uh, physical environment and setting, but just the therapist's concerns. And these are things that we wanna check in with about ourselves, which I don't think it's that hard to check in with ourselves, because normally these things jump out at us of like, oh gosh, this is really concerning. So just be intentional about that. What are you as the therapist or provider or case manager, what what are your concerns? What do you wish that you, what do you want the client to change? And, and, and be aware of that, not for you to be able to push that onto the individual, but just so you know that that has the chance, uh, there's an ability there for bias to sneak in. Um, so when we're aware of what our agenda, what we would want our agenda to be, we can be uh, a bit extra careful to make sure that we don't allow that to impact the treatment and the relationship moving forward. Um, so again, this will be reviewed in a little bit more detail on Wednesday, but uh, we just want to acknowledge that there is that assessment piece, and um, it has to be done in a in a, in a way that's open and uh, nonjudgmental, and as free as bias uh, as free from bias as possible okay and then of course we just want to remind you we're we're going to be looking at this again in the, the harm reduction psychotherapy chair and i like to i remember when we were brainstorming about this i, I don't i i one of the ways it sort of came about is like ideally you want all these things in balance and we want to be able to recognize uh with the individuals that we're working with which area probably needs to be uh needs to be addressed and i think about it like when you go to a restaurant I, which i know doesn't happen anymore but the good old days when we could go to restaurants and you get in the chair and it's wobbly you know what do you usually do i usually grab a sugar packet and wedge it under one of the 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 four legs of the chair so it's not wobbly so we want to do the same thing we want to grab a sugar packet and target which leg needs a little bit additional support so there's some stability uh, for that individual and today well not today but in this afternoon we're going to be focusing on all areas of these but primarily we're going to be looking at the attitudes beliefs thoughts and feelings Um, of course we're also going to be looking at the risk we'll talk a bit about some some resources. Um, and then of course, Elizabeth uh, uh, really addressed the motivation and stage of change. So again, we're gonna target those other three legs of the chair and, and see, how, um, uh, see how that applies to your work hopefully. Okay, so let's pretend we are now at the uh, stage of treatment where you're working on setting goals with the person that you, Um, with the person that you're working with. So some of this is repetitive, but first and foremost, don't assume that the person you're working with wants to address the harmful behavior. They may have reported to you, or it may be obvious that perhaps they use crystal meth, or maybe they use heroin, or maybe they're involved in sex work we don't want to put our expectations, we don't want to project those onto the person we're working with. So don't assume that that's the behavior that that person wants to address. Um, You know, if we Look at that! You know, I, when I was reading um, uh, the book that I had shown before, the practicing harm reduction psychotherapy. I mean, they open with such a great example of how um, I believe it's uh, uh, Jeannie Little as a as a clinician. You know, working with somebody who who had many different substance uh, challenges um, from prescription medications and alcohol that was clearly getting in the way of functioning for her, but anytime this individual went for treatment, the therapist always focused right on, okay, so we gotta do something about this drug use. And that's not why she was there in treatment. Now, it became clear that 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 substance use was uh, was prohibiting uh, the achievement of some of the goals that she had, particularly around the relationship that she was involved in and, and her employment. But she was turned off because every time a therapist like she'd go into a therapist's office and like okay let's work on these things she's like no i'm not that's that's not why i'm here and so that perspective for that client led her to continuously just go to another therapist until she found somebody who was willing to sit down with her and and listen to what she wants to address um and that's where uh Jeannie little came in and and she was able to work with uh with the individual in the book um to to provide some level of progress. Uh, we want to be cognizant of the stage of change that the individual is in. And again, it may be pre-contemplation where there's just no desire to make any changes to that. We don't need to share that change with the individual. We don't need to say, oh, it sounds like you're in this level of change um, around this behavior. Just something for you to note for yourself. And Regardless of the goal, uncover and emphasize the motivation for change. And this one is so important. I um, I I think it's sometimes easy to uh, easy to forget this. And I just to give an example. Um, and I'll share a few examples. And I I do want to emphasize that. You know, I examples I'm giving they're primarily from private practice or from previous experiences. I know that they are not necessarily like, the clients that are served by FSP programs um are typically uh, have less ability to uh, to function in some of the settings that clients I see in the private practice. So I, I don't intend to compare them. And I certainly I, I don't want to uh, send that message. So please keep that in mind. Um, but I have a, a man that I've been working with, um, who's really trying to set all of these goals about having a more routine in his day, stop, um, stop eating really unhealthy foods, exercise more. And, you know, it, it was really easy for me to forget to kind of talk about why he wants to make those changes. Because for me, I already had this agenda as soon as he said, like, yeah, these are things I really want to work on. um, Like, I, I, you know, I agree. I'm like, oh, that's great. Fitness is important. Being healthy is important. I love routine. So I didn't even think to ask about what his motivation was. So as we continue to struggle about with with him achieving those, those goals, um, it finally occurred to me. I'm like, oh, you know what? Why are you doing this? And I didn't ask it quite like that. But what's your motivation to to implement these changes in your life? Like they sound really good, but do you have a strong motivation to do them? What, what is that underlying motivation? And from there, we were able to to kind of uncover a lot of uh, a lot of nuances to why he was uh, trying to meet uh meet these goals and a, a lot of the the reasoning wasn't wasn't his own it was placed upon him from um from the uh, the person he is partnered with so uh again like it, it, it seemed obvious to me and that, that was a mistake i needed to i i need to ask like oh what's driving you what's your motivation to do this even when it seems obvious um, so those are just some tips around uh, setting those treatment goals. And, you know, there's another thing that I wanted to mention um, with treatment goals. Uh, and, and so this one, this sort of example I want to share does come with working with those who have serious mental illness and also struggle with substance use. And uh, and when I was working in New York City and when I worked with our ACT teams at the organizations, you know, we would get so frustrated because we we were person-centered. We weren't perfect, uh, but we really focused on setting goals that the individual wants to have in their life. And and then, of course, we would get audited by the Department of Mental Health uh, or the Office of Mental Health there. And, you know, they would be reading through a uh, few someone's record. And in the record, it says, yeah, this person uses uh, K2, which was a very popular or probably still is a very popular drug in New York City. And, And then they'd look at our treatment goals and then they'd question our clinicians, like, why aren't you guys putting, why is there no treatment goal here to address their K2 use? And for me, that was always so frustrating because the individual does not want to change their K2 use. So we are not going to put a goal in their treatment plan when it's something that they have no desire to change. So to me that was always like really frustrating and I imagine that you all might experience some of that same um that same struggle like you want to be recovery oriented person centered harm reduction recognize that if somebody's goal is to not reduce a behavior that's harmful you know We don't put it on the treatment plan, but then sometimes there are other entities that say, "Oh, wow, this is a problem. You need to put this on the treatment plan to address it." So again, I just want to recognize that I I have no solution for it. It's really stress or uh, it's really frustrating when our systems don't always align. Okay, so here are some examples of setting treatment goals around substance use and uh, at at different levels. So uh, to give some examples, again, particularly around substance use, it's so critical to explore all options. So that includes from no change in a problematic behavior to complete abstinence. Remember, harm reduction is not simply, you know, keep using and we'll keep you safe. That's an element of it, but it also can include abstinence. It can include moderation. It it can include small reductions until somebody is comfortable with whatever level that is. But let's say someone's desire to change is simply, I I have no desire to stop using. I love using math and I I have no plans to quit. Great. Well, not great, sorry. But uh, we don't want to put We certainly don't want to put that on the treatment plan, but what what would be a a goal to not completely ignore this individual? Well, it would be about ongoing engagement, developing trust and 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 of course, harm reduction and and to connect to some of the comments that were coming from before and, and some of what. Uh, Elizabeth was was speaking about, like the engagement and trust and relationship is so, so, so important, and even thinking about, you know, if we're out in the field and, and we have to meet with somebody who's uh, who's clearly intoxicated, you know, that might be a really great time if it, of course, if it's safe and it's not against your agency policy. But that's a really great opportunity to simply be present with the person and focus on engagement. Um, you don't have to talk about anything incredibly uh, uh, deep or or difficult or go into trauma. Like none of those things are probably appropriate when somebody's intoxicated. But uh, but that individual hopefully recognize when they are no longer high. If that come, if that does happen, that oh you know what Elizabeth was with me. And she didn't try to push an agenda on me. She accepted me for who I was. I don't remember what we talked about, but I remember that I felt pretty good when I was talking to her. I was high as hell, but you know what? She like she didn't care. And not that she didn't care, but she saw me as a person, and that didn't scare her away. Because, you know, another thing to consider is that substance use. Can be very much a protective factor for some people, particularly those. You know, I I know there's been a lot of talk of AOT, and there's clients who who don't want you as a provider. And nothing to do with you, of course, uh, but they don't they don't want to change. They are uh, they they feel as if they are they. They want to continue doing what they're doing. They don't want to meet with a social worker, or a counselor, or a psychiatrist, or a nurse, or case manager, and so. Um, oh my gosh! Now I just lost my train of. Oh, I remember now. So, if we're driven away when, you know, they're using, and we're, we go out to meet them and say, "Hey, you know, I was hoping we could do our assessment today, so we could get moving," and you know, if if. if The worker is like, oh, but I see you're high, so why don't we schedule another time? Well, if I don't want you to come around, I'm gonna keep getting high. So every time you come around, you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't see you today. Like, yes, I'm gonna keep smoking crystal meth because not only does it make me feel good, but it keeps you away. So keep that in mind. We don't wanna necessarily fall into that, uh, but recognizing it can be somewhat of a protective factor for them. what if somebody wants to reduce the substance but they but they don't want to quit? So there we want to be supportive. We want to uh, help them with some problem solving. And we want to recognize that small progress is progress. If they go one day without using as much as they did before, let's celebrate that if that's what the individual thinks is worth celebrating. Um, so again, going with some of the motivational interviewing concepts, we we don't want to kind of uh, be uh, uh, too uh, uh, paternal around that, but if they recognize like, yeah, I feel good that I didn't smoke as much meth today as I did yesterday, awesome. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I feel good great i do too you did a wonderful job and i'm here to support you moving forward and the one thing i I neglected to mention for both of those examples is the harm reduction is still there so whether somebody is reducing or not changing at all we want to do what we can to make sure that they are as safe as they could be um, within our boundaries and within appropriate parameters. Um, So whether that's referrals to safe using sites, um, uh, giving them some information about, uh, about overdose, providing them with Narcan, things like that. Like those activities still need to take place and then finally somebody has a desire to quit so wonderful like we want to be able to to support them um, refer them to treatment if that's where they would like to go show them where they could access peer support or um, or 12-step meetings still we will want to do a lot of problem solving because it's not going to be an easy road and during that time we still want to provide that harm reduction In the event that they use or relapse, we wanna be able to make sure that they're as safe as as possible. Okay, so these are some of the concepts that we are going to discuss over the next hour. Um, And it's kind of a a variety of things, but we wanna look at cognitive dissonance, locus of control, abstinence violation effect, feelings of guilt, shame, regret, and fear of judgment or embarrassment. So let's move on to the next slide and start talking about cognitive dissonance. Um, so this is a, I, I find this to be a pretty Helpful and important concept. I tend to practice from a cognitive behavioral perspective, so this is really in line with with how I think and 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 perceive some of the challenges that people I work with present with. So, uh, but for those of you who are unaware of this concept. Uh, cognitive dissonance is a psychological concept, and it refers to an incongruence between thoughts and behaviors, and that results in distress to the individual. So this concept originally was from Festinger in 1957. There's been a lot of research about it, and most of the research has really been around um, uh, whether or not cognitive dissonance is a mode of... excuse me, motivator for behavior change. And research has shown that it, that it is. And so that's where we're gonna focus on today. There is a little bit of evidence to support that the dissonance um, also produces a state of arousal we're not gonna focus on that today. And there's not enough evidence to really say whether or not that's a valid statement. So we wanna focus on how cognitive dissonance, that discomfort, that stress that it produces, we can use that to help motivate somebody to make changes in their lives. Um, A study in 1994 found that dissonance reduction uh, strategies can be effective in relieving the negative psychological distress. So, in other words, if somebody is experiencing cognitive dissonance, if we're able to work with somebody to help reduce that dissonance, or in other words, try to find some alignment between the thoughts and behaviors that they're experiencing, that should result in uh, in, in less uh, negative psychological distress. And 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 I guess where the difference is, and Elizabeth and I talked about this, and I, it really made my brain hurt. So <laughs> I'm not going to get into too much, but it's that difference between ambivalence and dissonance. And again, it, it's it's really tough to, um, uh, to to make that distinction. But I think one of the ways in my mind that I that I differentiate those two concepts is that I I do feel that ambivalence is is okay. Like there are lots of things in life where we have two conflicting, uh, opinions and with cognitive dissonance, um, it, it feels a bit, it feels a bit different. Like we're we, we want to, uh, relieve some of that dissonance with ambivalence. I don't necessarily want to, uh, change the ambivalence. I just want to bring that to, to the, uh, to their cognition and recognize that it's okay to have uh, varying thoughts and opinions about about the same thing. That's a very normal uh, uh, human experience. So I'm going to go to the next slide, but I do want to look at the uh, chat really quick. And yeah, uh, always important not to be agenda driven. I, gosh, I, that is so important. And I think about the times where I've Come into sessions with agendas, and like, nope, Matt, that's not where we're going. <laughs> so thank you for uh, for reiterating that. And and Rob asks, uh, should you suggest reduction in the amount of drugs used, or should that come from them? So from my perspective. I would want that to come from the individual. And if somebody comes to me and says, "Yes, I um, you know, I drink nightly." Um, and I have I I'm actually thinking of a specific person um who has about maybe five or six drinks every evening and um in my head I'm thinking, "Oh, wow, that's that's a lot." Um but but I I want to I, I'm curious to what what that individual thinks. So I'll ask him, I'm like, oh, well, thank you so much for sharing. What do you think about um, your drinking? Is that something you see as problematic? Are you okay with it? Is that something you want any sort of support with? Or is it like, we don't need to talk about it right now. And um, so I want to turn it back to them to to assess it, so I'm not putting my own judgment on that behavior. I want to know what their judgment on their behavior is, and then also I want to uh, sort of facilitate them setting the goal in what that would be. So I hope that answers your uh, question, Rob. I would encourage that it comes from them, but if they're asking for, um, if they're asking for our feedback or asking for our opinion. Um, you know I think it's I think it's okay to say uh to share with them what you what you think and feel, but just be very uh very mindful of how you communicate that because you don't want to come off as having judgment and ultimately we're interested in what they think about their problems, not so much what our opinion is um we just so going add, back
0: to, uh, sorry can I interrupt yeah. one second um am I will sort of formulaically say that you you know you should offer options and include reduction as one of them. And that's very MI-esque um, to say you can make no changes, you can make some changes, you can reduce, or you could uh, stop using specifically around substances or um, any behavior change. Um, so MI says it should come from you in terms of you offering a menu of options. Um, then I I very much, I'm much more of like, how do you feel about this current behavior similar to David? Do you want to make any changes? Are so you good with it as is? That kind of taking that route. And then harm reduction would have a little bit of a different perspective, sort of delineating that from MI. Um, it uh it would look around the, the use behavior and t- think about the harmful consequences of behavior and target those harms, not necessarily the behavior, especially not initially.
1: Yeah. Great. Thank you, Elizabeth. That's really helpful. Um so here, uh, in looking at cognitive dissonance, uh, and we're gonna go through some examples, but there's really only four ways to uh, to reduce the distress that cognitive dissonance creates. And so, um, let me just grab my notes here really quick, and I'm gonna go through a, a few uh, kind of really informal examples, um, and then we'll look at some that are uh, that are on the, on the slides. So I always find it helpful to, uh, to use an example to go through these descriptions. So uh, yeah, this example, I actually made this example up off of my dog, uh, her name is Pearl, but she does not have a drinking problem, I promise you. Um, so let me read this really quick. So Pearl wants to quit drinking and she feels that she is able to do so. She attempts to quit drinking, but only makes it until 7 p.m. without a drink. Pearl feels cognitive dissonance because she has the belief that she has control over her life or self-efficacy, yet she seems to be unable to change this habit. She thinks that if she did, in fact, have control over her life, she should be able to stop drinking. Okay, so that's the situation. We have Pearl, who's a person, not my dog, um, She drinks too much. She feels that she should be able to change it, but she can't. So now we're producing that dissonance. There are these conflicting thoughts, and then her behavior is very much not in agreement with what her thinking is saying. So the first thing that she can do, and that's that top bubble there, it's she can she can stop the thought or behavior so she can simply stop drinking. Um, or she could tell herself that she has no control over her wife. So either of those are an option. Now, we already know the stopping drinking that's that's been problematic. It hasn't been working out uh, so well for her. And, or we could say, you know, well, Pearl, it sounds like you just don't have any control over your life. Well, that might reduce some of the dissonance. But that would make me feel really bad if I was Pearl and somebody told me I had no control over my life. So, Again, both options, we'll keep those there. Now, the second bubble, now, if we uh, uh, look at that, it says, add to the thought or the behavior. So instead, so Pearl, if she's going to add to this to try to resolve some of the dissonance, she's going to instead say, you know what, I'm going to start smoking cannabis. And hopefully that'll that'll reduce my desire to drink. So she's going to add something to this situation to hopefully dissolve some of that dissonance that she's experiencing. Now, this could potentially be um, a harm uh, reduction perspective. in the fact that perhaps for for Pearl and her specific um, health issues and and set of circumstances, perhaps the negative side effects of cannabis are less harmful for her than the negative side effects of alcohol. Um, And if she felt that that was a success and that she could deal with the negatives of cannabis and not of alcohol and this feels like progress, then then okay, that's going to help uh, resolve some of the dissonance. But also, as you can imagine, um, she could start smoking too much cannabis and and also still drink. <laughs> so instead, she's drinking lots and also smoking cannabis lots. So that could be a problem. And uh, uh, let's see here. Oh, OK. Uh, so then the next one is we could say, well, let's change the thought or we could change the behavior. So. Instead, so maybe Pearl will tell herself that she wasn't truly ready, so she's changing her thoughts. Instead of saying, I can do this, she's like, okay, I wasn't ready, I need to change my expectations. Um, She'll try again tomorrow. And so in this option, She uses a little bit of rationalization, um, but it temporarily helps the dissonance. Uh, She doesn't go for the all or nothing approach. She doesn't add cannabis to uh, to her habit. She's like, I just wasn't ready. Okay, so that might help. But if she has the same feeling again tomorrow, it's going to start to build up. It's going to start being problematic. And then the last option, and that's the one on the bottom that says ignore the thought or behavior, um, that one's just simply ignoring that the problem um, exists or deny that drinking is having any negative consequences. So it reduces the dissonance, but it doesn't solve any of the problems. Um, actually, and this one's off, also, oftentimes a little bit outside of reality. And we'll go through more examples. Um, but, you know, let's say Pearl gets in trouble because uh, she drinks all the time, even though she insists that she doesn't have a drinking problem. And, you know, her boss is like, uh, your behavior is off. You smell like booze. Um, Pearl might say, that's only because you don't like me. It has nothing to do with my drinking. Um, so, It's not really rational, not really based in reality, but essentially these four ways are how people can resolve that dissonance. And some of them create new problems. Some of them um, are outside of reality and some of them actually work to solve the problem or move somebody just a little bit of a step further, closer to having a resolution. So if we could go to the next slide and while you do that, I'm going to uh, look at the uh, chat and Hugh asks, uh, since fentanyl is being used to cut and spike drugs in the community, how would you have a conversation about this behavior? And are the problems that in w- uh, the programs, I'm sorry, that would test street drugs like ecstasy uh, testing measures at a rate? That's such a great example. Um, Elizabeth and I were actually talking about some of that um, as we were preparing for this. But yeah, you know, as we're talking about options, and, as Elizabeth had shared, you know, we want to look at all of the different options. well, this would be well actually, we take a step back as we're looking at all of those different options, we also want to look at the pros and cons and the the risks and rewards of every one of those options and so one of those risks is to say you know if if like, oh, it sounds like you still want to continue using um be aware that there's fentanyl that's being used and um and that can be really dangerous so we would want to make a link to some of those programs, and I apologize for not knowing if they exist in L.A. County, um, but there are ways to test. There are fentanyl mm-hmm. strips that can test the substance you're using has any amounts of fentanyl in it. So I would absolutely want to connect somebody to that resource um, if, if they don't want to stop using Anything yeah, to add, Elizabeth?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, we'll talk about that Wednesday of next week a bit. Um, there are some resources to acquire free testing strips. Um, but yeah, there's two pieces, I think, to your question. It's uh, If someone is telling you they're using substances, and that can include methamphetamine, cocaine, or heroin, um, or who knows, whatever else. Uh, Fentanyl has gotten into things and don't really make sense, right? It's in stimulants, which is uh, odd. Yeah. Um, and it it is helpful to let people know if they haven't learned about fentanyl that it's a little bit of a wild card risk, um, and it's a tough one to talk about because it's you know you're basically telling people you could overdose and die and have been doing a substance that you would otherwise not be able to overdose from and die like uh, meth or a cocaine. So um, having that level of you'd have to consider the trust you have with that person, the rapport, the ability to speak about that and not come off in a fear mongering way, but talk about it pragmatically, just like you know, there's a risk in me eating some French fries after this. It's 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 tough. It's tough to talk about the really scary parts of substance use without um, uh, without imposing fear upon people. Um, but yeah, the resources exist, and you could uh, discuss uh, accessing those with them, and then move forward.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, thank you. And great question. And I see another comment just being really interested in accessing those uh, for the population that you work with. Yeah, I imagine that would be a really valuable resource and it's probably worth us doing a little bit of investigation just to see what exists. um, We'll review a
0: little bit of that on Wednesday for sure. Yeah, we can take more time with it if it's helpful. So
1: here are some examples, uh, random examples of, of dissonance. And so, you know, in the left column, uh, I have a thought or behavior and then I have sort of the the uh, the one that contradicts or, or causes the dissonance. So here, the first one we have, somebody is thinking people must be employed to have purpose in life and contribute to society. And then that same person is thinking, oh, I don't work and I haven't been able to hold a job. So a little bit of dissonance is created there. And um and so in order for in this example, what this individual did is they decided that they have no purpose in life. So resolve the dissonance um, that no longer exists. But now they have this problem of uh, probably not feeling so good about themselves, that they have no purpose in life because that's they added a thought to this uh, to this situation to resolve it. But unfortunately, that thought is going to cause uh, even more problems. Now Here's another example. I want to be healthy and treat myself with the respect that I deserve. I drink approximately six to eight drinks every evening and wake up hungover on most days. So again, here's a, here's a conflict. Some Someone's feeling uh, some dissonance here. So similarly to the example above, they, this person added a behavior. They added joining a gym. Now, it may seem a little bit silly, like, well, what does that have anything to do with it? Well, maybe this individual, they have no desire to quit drinking, but they wanna be healthy. And so, well, we'll, we'll take it from another angle. And it's a little bit of a rationalization. However, I think something like this, the more I think about it, could actually be, can actually be a positive. So let's say you're working with someone like this and they join a gym. Then they start to realize that, oh, they never make it to the gym because they're hungover over every day. Um, that might be more fuel to help motivate them to make a different type of change. And again, us being aware of what our agendas are and making sure we don't place that on them. But, you know, I would be thinking inside like, oh, I really hope that they recognize that the drinking most likely is probably the problem. I'll be thinking that, I won't say it, but this may be more evidence for them to realize like, oh, okay, this approach isn't working. I need to do something different. Um, Another example, I don't want to spread COVID. Um, uh, I don't want to spread COVID to everyone. I don't wear masks unless I'm forced to. And so here we have, I classify this as a bit of denial. Um, I won't spread COVID. I'm really careful around people. Well, being careful doesn't like, there's evidence to support that if you're not wearing a mask and doing those other things that you are going to spread COVID. So that to me is based it is a little bit of denial. So that's sort of the the route that this individual chose to resolve that dissonance. Here's another one, I'm trying to lose 15 pounds before the holidays. And then I ate an entire bag of Doritos when I was uni- using cannabis last night. So. The way that this person um, resolves some of the dissonance is they change their thoughts. Well, I deserve to treat myself. <laughs> so, same, how, how many times have we used that uh, rationalization? Sometimes appropriately, sometimes not so much. Um, I love my, here's a, a, two more examples, sorry. Uh, I love my boyfriend and he, and he provides for me. I'm sometimes scared because my boyfriend forces me to have sex with him in a violent way. So how am I gonna resolve this dissonance? I'm going to change my thoughts. I'm going to rationalize the relationship and say, it must be that fear is just a normal part of a loving relationship. I know I have certainly seen this um, in people that I've worked with, particularly those with, who've been in domestic violence relationships or those who grew up with uh, who are adult survivors of childhood uh, abuse. I've uh, certainly seen that dynamic play out. And then my my last example on this, um, I only have unprotected sex because condoms don't feel good. But then, so that's the behavior, but then there's this other thought of like, I'm scared of getting HIV. So in order to achieve consonance or get rid of the dissonance, they go into uh, a little bit of denial um, or they change their thoughts, it's hard to say, but the thought is, I'm not scared of HIV. In fact, I wanna get HIV. Um, And I know that sounds a little radical. It actually, it absolutely does exist. Um, And uh, yeah, that's one way to resolve some of that dissonance obviously It causes more problems um, than it probably solves, but good to be aware. Okay, so since dissonance can be a strong motivator for behavioral change, we can use this to our advantage. And the reason we thought it was important to talk about cognitive dissonance is so we can try to recognize that with the people that we serve. And, And we don't, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to say, oh, look, these two things are clearly conflicting. You need to change something. It's not like that, but it's about some of the skills that Elizabeth was talking about earlier. Some of that reflection, reflection can be so powerful when dealing with cognitive dissonance, because uh, again, as Elizabeth was saying, as they talk it out, you know, they may not always realize, we don't always remember the words that are coming out of our mouths. But then when you hear it stated back at you, you you hear it differently sometimes it's it's called externalizing getting those thoughts out of your head and then the provider you all uh reflect back And it might make sense and actually really interesting. um, I have such a great example of uh, successful reflection. They don't always succeed, but last night I I was working with uh, one of my clients and we were talking about this idea of progress and, and she shared with me about how she's like, well, I've done this since we've been working together. This has improved, I'm making progress. She's like, I'm afraid I'm not gonna make any more progress. And so I just reflected that back at her, back to her. Sorry, <laughs> it's a Freudian slip. Um, I'm like, oh, so it sounds like you've been making progress. Um, so I'm, uh, but you don't think you'll make any more. I'm, I'm, cons- I'm, I'm a little bit confused. Can you tell me why you like? What's changed? And I actually kind of stumped her, and <laughs> which is, I didn't realize. Like again, sometimes I minimize the power of these very simple um interventions but like she actually went silent like oh it's like I don't I don't know (laughs) so hopefully that got her to think about like yeah we could continue to make lots of progress because that's been the route we've been on so um but yeah we want to highlight any dissonance in a non-judgmental manner and without personal bias so again we don't want to uh we don't want to come off like, oh, you're saying these two different things. That makes no sense. You just want to highlight it and reflect it back. We want to normalize that cognitive dissonance is, is a really common feature. It's a common phenomenon that we all experience at many times. Um, you know, I personal example, I I've shared this before, so I'm sorry, Elizabeth, you always have to hear my same stories over all the time. Um, But I love animals and I'm not like a big animal rights person, but I had a lot of cognitive dissonance about eating meat like for the last five years or so, I've been like struggling with that. And so I finally, uh, I became a vegetarian back in February. And I haven't eaten meat since. And it actually resolved some of my dissonance. I'm like, okay, now I feel a little bit better, because I, those things were just not in line for me. And I'm not saying that that's what other people should do. I'm just saying what worked for me, you know, I still have you know, a leather belt and, and boots, I'm not vegan or anything, but that, that helped to resolve some of the dissonance for me. Um, and then uh, this is a, a reiteration, but we wanna collaboratively develop a variety of possible solutions. So again, a wide range of things. So let's go to the next concept. So that is cognitive dissonance. Let me know if you have any questions in the chat and we're going to move to locus of control. And we've been kind of hinting about locus of control throughout this. And to to just be more specific about it, um, people have, uh, the locus of control is how we view the things that happen to us. You know, am I where I am right now because of things that I've done because of actions I've taken, or is it just like, ah, you know, I just kind of happened to fall into this field, things aligned, the stars aligned, and, you know, here I am, you know, if, if, if I was to say, you no, you know, I, I put a lot of thought into my career 25 years ago, and um, you know I worked really hard. I went to school. I paid off loans. I did these things. That would be me having a very internal locus of control. Now, if I were to say, yeah, it just happens, and yeah, I kind of fell into this. I just kind of roll with whatever life throws at me, that's probably more of an external locus of control where you don't really have a lot of control of what happens in your life. Other things control it. Um, so it's not to say that one perspective is better than the other. However, it, there is research to show that being having a more internal locus of control um, can be a little bit better for mental health in some regards. Now, um, so actually, it, a study that our um, our director, Dr. Beth Bromley did, um, she actually looked at locus of control and, and uh, looked at how it impacts mental health outcomes for people who are dealing with psychosis. And so one of the uh, three of the conclusions that came from her research is that in, uh, having an internal locus of control is significantly associated with increased recovery in schizophrenia. A more external locus of control was significantly related to depression. And and also the relationship between externality or having that external locus of control and and, uh, psychosis uh, was significant. So based on this study, there are other studies that have very similar findings but when people have a more external locus of control, they might suffer a bit more from depression. Um, they may have lower self-esteem. They, uh, their psychosis uh, or symptoms of psychosis might be a little bit more severe than somebody who has an internal locus of control. And when you think about that objectively, it, it makes sense. When, when we feel like we are in control of our lives or our situations, um, I know I tend to feel better. Um, but if I feel like I have no control over something and things just happen to me, it doesn't make me feel so good. Um, makes me feel a little bit hopeless um, to know that my fate is in the uh, in the hands of of somebody else um, I'm, I'm curious if anybody talks about locus of control um, with the people that they serve um, and uh, and if if this comes up at all, uh, and if you've recognized how it's played a role in individual's lives. You could feel free to type that in, and I don't see anything in the comments, so we'll go ahead and move to the next slide. Okay, so uh, Elizabeth alluded to this before, but The abstinence violation effect. And I might have to turn to Elizabeth to explain some of the nuances around this as well. (laughs) But I I was excited um, because this is, I think, maybe the first time that I got to put the F word into a slide that I'm training on publicly. So this is also known as the fuck it effect. Um, It's the tendency to go all in if abstinence is violated. use behavior after violation. It's dependent on attributions. Um, and actually, I'm going to not talk about that right now, because then we go into more detail about that. But I want to I give you a personal example of how I used to do this. And I probably still do, you'd have to ask my partner, he would probably know better. But I, I sometimes like to spend lots of money and go shopping. And sometimes I'm like, Nope, I have this goal. I am not going to spend money. I'm not putting anything on my credit card. And then I'm like, Oh my gosh, I really need this though. I'm going to be breaking my budget. I'm like, well, fuck it. You know what? I'm going to get all the things that have been on my list start next week. (laughs) I have definitely done that on more than one occasion, and I'm not quite proud of that, but I can hopefully use that as an example that might make this uh, make a little bit more sense. Do you guys see this with people that you serve who, uh, you know, may have been using or involved in a behavior that they're trying to cut back on? relapse, especially during the holidays. Yeah, one, (laughs) yeah, totally agree. One for you, one for me. Yes, then it starts getting one for you, two for me. And then next thing you know, I've done all of my Amazon shopping, everything is for me and there's one gift for somebody else. So yeah, absolutely do that. We can go to the uh, next slide and we're going to go through this and, Okay. There we go. All right. So there are there are a variety of factors that impact the abstinence violation effect. Okay. So here we have substance use. So let's say that you know the person we are working with. Let's say it's me. Best to uh, uh, best to use myself as an example. Let's say I um, I drink a ton and I'm trying to quit. The factors that are going to mediate how well I respond when I relapse are listed here. So do I have an internal locus of control or do I have an external locus of control? So perhaps if I feel that I am internally, that I do have control, even if I relapsed, I still have control, Um, that that might set me up for success. That might make it that my, uh, absence violation impact isn't as strong. Um, where if I think I have no control over this, maybe that's not setting me. maybe my AVE is going to be a little bit more, a little bit more severe. Um, there's stable and static factors. There's, uh, coping skills, the motivation, all of these things go into how somebody may respond um, when they relapse. And so now I'm going to turn to you, Elizabeth, if you could go into a little bit more detail on these.
0: I can try. Um, Yeah, I think the sort of key here with these mediating factors isn't that there's no specific formula. It's not like uh, I have high coping skills and external locus of control and low self-advocacy, and therefore I'm going to Really go all in versus not, so that's what we see on the right side here. The how much we will double down or triple down, or not at all, or just you know lapse and go right back to where we were. Um, there's no no formula here, or if there is, it'd be a really complicated one. Um, but something, one takeaway here is this is why a goal of abstinence can be dangerous and harmful if people aren't ready for it. And so there's a lot of internalization of people thinking they should be abstinent, that they should quit, that they should go to rehab. And it's just not always realistic. And what you end up having with people lapsing or relapsing and and interpreting that in a negative light, perhaps blaming themselves for it, um, that's going to impact how how much they might return to the behavior um, ongoing. A couple of other little pieces, and I get a little confused uh, talking about this myself, but um, Ellen Marlat's research, who was a uh, relapse prevention, um, was a big topic of his. He's also a harm reductionist, um, I encourage you to read one of his books as well. I'll put that on our list. Um, if the sort of the way that the person in in attributes um, the cause of the lapse or relapse, that has so much to do with whether they will go all in um, or whether they'll just return to um, their their phase of action or maintenance. Um, and apparently, if the attribution is related to like uh, low willpower, so like internal factors, um, so that could be a little bit of internal locus of control, actually, but in a blaming way um, or disease, like something that is and not going to change, or uh, like I have this disease and it's never going to, it's never going to, it's chronic, it's not changing, then full-blown relapse is actually more likely to occur versus if the attribution is maybe made towards like it was a novel or tempting situation, it was, you know, like unstable factors that are specific and, um, you know, not not lasting. or something that has nothing to do with them and their character and willpower, then there's a greater chance of returning to abstinence. Um, But there's so many other pieces that come into this here, right? Like, just think of coping skills. And we're talking about this from a CBT uh, framework because, you know, having uh, CBT skills is so critical here. If someone can really think about, if they can process on their own what their attributions are, what their thoughts and beliefs are, and how that's impacting them, then they can get a better grip on, you know, what to do. Now they've they've done this thing. They're having some thoughts uh, about it, and that's going to impact their their upcoming behavior. They can then, if they have some CBT to, CBT skills, I cannot speak anymore myself. CBT skills, um, they can do some intervention around um, what what that becomes, whether it becomes full-blown relapse or not. Hopefully, that's making sense. But yeah, there's no, no formula here. These are just like a list of things that could be considered. And, uh, the main lesson is just, I don't, if abstinence isn't really, 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 really what they want and attainable, then starting with like some other goals or encouraging like more, uh, stepwise progression would be wise.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. That's really, really helpful. Um, yeah, it, it, I would love to see like more research to see if there is some more like uh, correlation between all these factors and how it how it impacts that violation and uh, absence violation effect. But yeah, it's a really interesting concept. And, you know, I, I think for us, the takeaway to be aware of these things and um, and yeah, recognize if this is a, a behavior or pattern that people you work with in, engage in. Um, and it's also so much based in that all or nothing thinking. So, yeah, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for that. And uh, while we go to this slide, I just want to answer a question. Um, it says, in order to have a sense of empowerment, isn't a balance between internal or external, or I'm sorry, and external, locus of control and necessity? Um, so, I, I don't think it's a necessity, but that it, it depends on each individual, like where. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to say that that one is necessarily better than the other. I know what works better for me, um, and having a very internal locus of control. It doesn't mean that the individual feels that they control everything, um, but it, all based in reality, of course. Internal meaning that you know, yes, I have control over the things I actually do have control over, and to, I hope that I don't know if that made sense quite bit. Like, an example I wanted to, um, or something I wanted to share earlier and I completely forgot. So I'm glad you brought that question up, but um, th- there has been some research for people who have a more internal locus of control that they actually have increased anxiety um, because that the things that happen um, and the mistakes that that might occur, some of the negative things, or maybe even some of the things that happened in their lives that they don't have control over, they may have this misconception of, "I failed, what did I do wrong?" And like, "Well, well, no, maybe you didn't do anything wrong, but it 's actually something that you you don't have control over. And because some that person's so internally based, they kind of feel like they have to take responsibility for those things. So that's kind of the downside. And, and as I'm speaking aloud, and I I'm kind of processing around your question, and that might be actually a good reason for why balance is helpful, where if that's causing an increase in anxiety, and being more externally is causing an increase in depression, you know, I don't know if there is research um, there, but uh, that would be really interesting to see if balancing, having a more balance there would also uh, mean that there's a balance in mood too. I, I don't know if that's the case, but it's a really interesting point and interesting question. So thank you for for bringing that up. Um, so now oh, looking at fear, guilt, shame, and blame, like uh, obviously these are, Really, really big concepts. Uh, we we don't have time to go into detail with with all of these, but I mean, this is really about the clinician style. And I believe I, I mentioned this on Tuesday. Uh, I took a quote from the Denning and Little book in that the counselor must welcome a person's drug and drug use as willing as willingly as he or she welcomes the person. And I think that statement is so powerful because it really, um, that, that in itself addresses fear, guilt, shame, and blame, at least in that safe environment, wherever you are meeting with an individual. Now they wrote this book with the idea that people are coming into their office and providing therapy. So we have to transfer that over to working in the field, working on the streets, working in, you know, uh, uh, supportive housing or any other sort of environments. So it might look a little bit different, but we still have to create that space. So we said this many times, acceptance different from approval um, is so, so important. It doesn't mean you approve. It just means that you accept what reality is. And that reality is this person is deciding to do whatever. Um, And, uh, Again, Elizabeth had said this uh, very well. Explore the use with curiosity, not blame, and certainly not shame. So, moving on to the next slide, uh, we just kind of talk a little bit more about this, holding the environment um, and providing a space with a permeable barrier. And so, this is this is interesting because we we want to create a, a safe place. Um, where an individual feels like they trust you, where they can talk about challenging things, um, where they can be free from judgment from you as the provider. And so the clinician has to really strictly adhere to that. If you say you're going to meet somebody at a certain time, we want to make sure that you adhere to that, otherwise you're going to damage the trust. However, the individual you're working with, they may not honor those things as strongly as we do as the clinician or case manager. That's okay. Um, We recognize that uh, we all have different resources and there are lots of reasons for why somebody may not return to our holding environment. But regardless, we still wanna make sure that we have that space for them. And then uh, we have tolerance, Uh, There can be no punitive sanctions for what a person chooses to put into his or her body or for what he or she refuses to put into his or her body. I really love that quote. So here are some. Uh, specific resources and really for a variety of goals. Um, Some of these are abstinence-based, some of these are uh, moderation-based. Now, you'll have this slide in your packet so you can return to this, but there's a few harm reduction resources here. Um, We have the list for 12-step programs. We have a Christian-based recovery uh, resource here, Refuge recovery uh, is wonderful. It's, uh, uh, it's a recovery model specifically for indigenous populations. So really appreciate the variety of resources here. and I would encourage you to you know look back on this slide and um, and check some of these out. So we want to go to a vignette. Okay, so here's a scenario I, you might have started reading. I just wanna let you know, this has some sensitive information. Um, and if it's a little much for you, please do what you need to do to take care of yourself. If you don't wanna stay for this, that's okay. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and read this. So this is a uh, fictional scenario, but we we absolutely know that this this happens. Uh, So Kevin, he enjoys engaging in PNP, which is an abbreviation for party and play. Uh, Party and play for Kevin involves the use of meth, and he does that through means of intravenous injection and it, engage it and then engages in having unprotected, unprotected sex with multiple partners. So you can view these as somewhat of parties where people are using meth and having lots of sex. Um, Kevin does this about two times per month. Kevin is HIV positive and diagnosed with schizophrenia. Although Kevin has a lot of fun during these sessions, they have resulted in additional STIs psychosis and inability to maintain his medication regime um, for psychiatric medications, as well as medications for physical health conditions. He has a difficulty holding a job and inability to be in a healthy relationship. So Kevin reports that he wants to be healthier and settle down with a long-term partner. So yeah, that's a lot of information. And I wanna connect this back to the assessment period because I... Uh, this scenario demonstrates like this is such a complex harm reduction example in that let's say you are like, let's say you're meeting with Kevin. He doesn't really trust you yet. And you ask, you know, you go down your list, do you do drugs? It's like, yeah, I I do meth. Okay. Um, Then you go through all of your other questions. Thinking, knowing that somebody uses meth, and then knowing the context in which they use meth, this is clearly a really different picture. Like somebody, you might meet Kevin and he says, yeah, I have some, you know, I'm, I I do have unprotected sex and, um, you know, I also use meth. Like you may start to think like, okay, wow, well, this meth is, it sounds like it is really problematic. But then when you put it into this context, like, oh, wow, like the, um, the challenges that he might be experiencing are much more complex. And your perspective of what those challenges are is most likely going to change. And you're not gonna get this information. And this is really sensitive. Like this would take, you know, it takes some time to disclose this um, in some cases. And so if you don't welcome the, the person and their use habits, um, they may not share these things with you. You may be limited to thinking, yeah, I have this client. He likes to use meth. We're trying to get him to reduce his use of meth. You're missing a whole other component of what his meth use is like that has its own set of risks. So it, it really just to reiterate how important that relationship is, because a lot of these behaviors have a lot of stigma, and it might be really, really difficult for somebody to talk about them. Um, So going to the next slide, now I have Kevin. So we recognize that there is some really clear cognitive dissonance. Um, He wants to be healthy. He wants to have a relationship. He's doing things that are clearly, well, I don't want to say clearly. um, From my perspective, I don't think they would really lead to him achieving his goals. So, you know, we could go through this and, and, uh, you know, the first one here is, you know, thoughts and behaviors. Kevin, what if he completely stops using meth? Well, that would be him in order to achieve consonants. That would just be stopping that behavior. That would be a little bit all or nothing. That would be great if he completely stopped using meth, but that may not be realistic. Um, Here are some other options that he can uh, employ to reduce that dissonance. So maybe he only parties once a month instead of twice a month. So that would be some progress. That would be a change of the thought or behavior. Um, maybe he goes into sort of a complete denial. He convinces himself that he, does, he has a healthy sex life. Meth is similar to doing lots of coffee. Okay, probably not based in reality. Um, I've had lots of coffee. I've never had meth, but I imagine those are two very different experiences. Um, but again, that might help him to achieve consonance but also that's something that we would want to do a lot of reflection back. Um, So again, these are just lots of different options of how he might be thinking he can resolve some of that consonants and they're all valid options. They may not all be, they all carry their own consequences with them as well. So let's go to the next slide. So we're now moving into kind of part two about uh, the scenario. So, you know, Kevin does get connected with the FSP program and so here's his uh, here's his case manager or FSP clinician I'm sorry her name is Sherry Uh, she utilizes Socratic questioning to help clarify what some of the issues are so um I know it's not spelled out in the vignette but we can we can assume that she's been really sort of um Uh, She's been really open, non-judgmental. He got to a place where he trusts her, and he actually shared all of those details. And she didn't judge him for that. And so here are some of the questions she asks. What do you enjoy about this? What's the downside? In what ways does your habit bring you closer to that goal of being more healthy? And are there ways that it interferes? So She doesn't make any assumptions. Um, She doesn't put her own agenda. She doesn't say, wow, it sounds like you should probably not use meth because it's really interfering with all these things. She's trying to see if Kevin is going to come to those conclusions on his own. And she's there to use her Socratic questioning to help guide that conversation, to help him come to some of those same realizations. Now, we recognize that not everybody, individuals levels of insight um can can vary greatly so that's where she's going to have to do some adjustment uh, increase her reflection maybe use a little bit more directed questions if somebody doesn't have the insight to uh to kind of follow through on this uh, socratic questioning process but um but here are some great questions that she uses to try to get to uh some of these stated goals so let's move on to the next section or the next slide Okay, so here's part three of our uh, very exciting vignette. During their session, Kevin was able to realize that his goal of health and his partying habits were misaligned. When discussing meeting someone for a long-term relationship, Kevin stated that he wouldn't want to date anyone he meets at these parties because he would never be able to trust a guy who's into P. Kevin and Sherry worked together to identify what behaviors he would like to change, if any, and to what degree. Kevin reports that he has the ability to change, but he's not ready to stop partying. He has no interest in abstinence, but instead they outlined a plan with small incremental changes and strategies for safer playing. So here's where she's really uh, implementing some of those harm reduction techniques, Um, not pushing the agenda for abstinence because he's clearly has no desire to to make uh to make that level of change however you might be able to recognize just some of the dissonance that just comes out of this dialogue here you know the state sentence that stands out for me is kevin reports that he wouldn't want to date anyone at these parties because he wouldn't be able to trust them so we would certainly want to work with that dissonance with that sort of uh in incongruent thought of like okay like wow that's that sounds like a really powerful statement. Do you think other people would want to date you if you, because you do some of these things or is this a value you think that maybe only you have like I would really want to explore that statement a little bit more and hopefully be able to reflect some of the dissonance that's within that uh, that's within that context. Um, so let's go ahead to the next slide with. 10 minutes left. <laughs> um, so here is the safer partying plan that Sherry and Kevin developed. So instead of two parties a month, they're only going to attend one. Um, another idea that they developed collaboratively is he's gonna host his own party so he can only invite that people, he can only invite people that he has played with before and that he can trust. What does trust me? I, you know, doesn't mean it's perfectly safe. Totally get that. Um, he could set aside his weekend supply of all the medication and keep it with his meth, so he remembers that it's there. So when he is very high on meth, and let's say the high lasts for, you know, twelve hours, and maybe they do a, a, a they use a, a few doses, so they're up for twenty-four hours. Um, it might be really hard for him to remember to take his medications. That might be the last thing he's thinking about at that moment. But if he has a place where he keeps his meth um, and if his medication is there too, he, he might be prompted when he goes for, for, for more drugs, he might, oh, I, have to, I still have to take my HIV meds. I still have to take my psych meds. It may or may not work, but it's a step. And also only using clean needles. Kevin was not willing to smoke. Instead, we could assume that we address that. And he's like, nope, the rush is not the same. You got to inject it. Okay, we're going to let's talk about make uh, clean needles and see if we can connect him with resources there. I'm curious, are there any other harm reduction strategies that people might think would apply here? Um, and why you think about that, and hopefully type in some suggestions. Um, one of the things I was uh, thinking about and jotted some notes down of, you know, I, I think uh, meth is notorious for, uh, for meth mouth. I, I don't like that term, but, uh, but how it impacts your teeth. And uh, so that might be something that Kevin would be interested in addressing as well, like you get really dry mouth when using meth, so you might want to, you know, have certain like sugar free candies to keep your mouth wet. I mean, I don't know. I know it's a sex party that may not be a realistic thing, but who knows, like, let's just look at all of the options that are there. you know, making sure that even you you bring a toothbrush, because another reason that happens is because people don't take care of their, um, they don't take care of their oral hygiene um, during that time. Oh, Hugh, what about condoms? Absolutely. Like, that's something we would want to suggest with him. We would want to explore that with him to see if that's a change that he's uh, willing and or ready to make. So when we're when he's when we're talking about that little kit that he has where he keeps his drugs and hopefully medications and now hopefully clean needles, let's put some condoms in there as well to see if that's something he's willing to do um, during these uh, during these sessions. Excellent suggestion. Thank you, Hugh, for putting that in there. Anything else? I recognize this is such a limited list and there are so many directions we can go. Um, and in the meantime, Elizabeth, we could probably move on to the to the next slide. OK, and so here's kind of a final discussion question. Do you think Kevin does he need to be referred to treatment? Oh, we I, I That's a great suggestion. Um, If it's people he trusts that he's inviting, would they agree to STD testing pre-party? Excellent idea. That is, that is, that's a really great question that we'd be able to talk to Kevin about. Very good. It's like taking that just a step further. And you can see that all of these options, you could just take them, you could, they all have the opportunity to be taken a step further to make things just a little bit safer. Yeah. Hopefully one day, this is not going to be part of his life, but that's not for for us to decide. It's like not wearing a mask on a plane. (laughs) Yeah, No kidding, right? Um, What do you all think about uh, referrals to treatment? Would anyone make a referral even though he says he does not want to go to treatment? Yes, thank you. (laughs) So yeah, you would still make those referrals. It's letting them know like, okay, just in case you ever change your mind, here's some resources. I think there's pros and cons to that. I I think you, yeah, he may change his mind. Like that's, he may be, he may say like, yes, I'll I'll go ahead and take those and I'll
0: put that, keep them just in case. Um, I think. For actual, sorry, just to clarify, there's a difference in resources and referring to treatment. So we're talking about referring to treatment, like directly trying to connect someone, get them space um, in rehab, whatever.
1: Mm, good clarification. I'm sorry. I think I might have been mixing those uh, that language up. And so here's a comment of, like if he doesn't want to go, then making the referral won't go anywhere. I give him the resources, but I wouldn't give him an appointment or anything at this time. Makes sense. Um, depends what Kevin's goals are and if he's open, o- open to continuing with treatment. Uh, okay. I see some people would refer to residential, yes to linkages, no to referrals. Yeah.
0: So we've got some people who say you would still refer despite the fact that he said he has no interest. I'm wondering what that would do to your relationship with Kevin and who that benefits. Part of what we're trying to get out here, and it's a bit of a trick question, is um, you wouldn't because he said he doesn't want to go. So we would wait for Kevin to say, you know what, we did the safer partying plan. This, This has been helpful, but it's not cutting it, and I think I need more help. Then we would refer to treatment when he's really got the motivation, when he's at the appropriate stage of change. And I, I am only taking a stance on this because that's the entire purpose of the training is really to impart this consideration of we can't just um, refer to treatment as a as a reflex, as an, as an always apply uh, referral to treatment because it, could, it can be, cause more harm.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I think depending on this relationship with Kevin, like this may be the first time that Kevin has actually been able to uh make plans with a professional that like that that are really personal like like Sherry really listened to him and they were creative as opposed to kind of doing something that's a, you know it, it's really sometimes can be so easy to say well here's a list of resources and go ahead um but no like they like okay so maybe as long as Kevin knows that he has a place to go if he ever changes his mind, but in the meantime, I just think about how uh, how facilitative of a strong therapeutic relationship that safe party planning uh, can be for, for them. And uh, here's a, uh, another really important uh, statement. We have to allow clients to fail to better understand their position and options. So looking at that dig- the dignity of risk and um, and, and trying to figure out where we want to fall within that. We don't want to be overprotective, but we also don't want to simply ignore the problem and say, well, you're you're on your own. Do what you want to do, and you know, here I am if you need anything. <laughs> no, we want, we want to find the balance in there. So here are some potential treatment options if, uh, well, th- of course, depending where Kevin is, there's, of course, motivational interviewing, harm reduction, the things we've been talking about past two days, uh, uh, medication-assisted treatment, detox if medically necessary, of course. Then we have inpatient residential treatment. But again, those are only if that's where the client wants to go. Outpatient counseling is an option, peer support. There's abstinence-focused support groups and the moderation-focused uh, groups. So, uh, so yeah, these are different potential treatment options if Kevin or the person you're working with is requesting and wanting to receive treatment specifically for their substance abuse issue or behavior that uh, has potential harms. so Great. And next slide, okay. Um, things to consider when you're making a referral to treatment, and I think Elizabeth uh, stated a lot of these things really, really clearly. but. Um what's what what stage of change are they in? Is it mandated? Those are certainly things you want to know. Um ideally, hopefully the referral to treatment is because the client wants to. And um, and if they are mandated to treatment, which we see so very often, um we still we want to highlight where they have some some autonomy in there. And then uh some of the hows, you know, shared decision making it's kind of a skill on its own um, and considerations uh, for the right fit of treatment. Uh, so some of these hopefully we'll get to talk a little bit more about um, next week. And I think, is that the last slide for today? Oh, okay. Here are the two books that
0: uh, uh, we've been referencing quite a bit. All oh, the mini, yeah. <laughs> we'll have to get you, we'll get a good photo of all the book covers, or no, we'll, we'll make a select references list for some of these books, because there's We talked about these two and then the um, pat denning and jeannie little book is also perhaps the best of those three um yeah and that's it right on time amazing for to treatment when the client is ready yeah and it's and i do apologize for taking a strong stance but Um, It is really critical. This is something we, I feel like we just got trained to do to just refer out um, because we didn't know what to do with substance use. I know that was my experience from grad school and early jobs. And it's, uh, we have to think more carefully. We have to think really about the sensitivity of of, um, risky behaviors and stigma and shame and self-efficacy and all of these pieces that come together to impact w- whether someone can make a lasting change and when they can. Motivation, ambivalence, cognitive dissonance, all of it. We have to consider it. And all we have to do all this while following the path that the client is setting for themselves at that time.
1: It's a lot, it's hard. Yeah. You know, and the other consideration, and of course, people have to get off the line totally get it um but the other consideration is like when we make a referral to treatment for somebody who doesn't want to go to treatment there's a good chance that they're going to have a negative experience if they actually were to follow up with it um they're also using resources that they don't want and that may not succeed where it, and resources are not uh like they're finite and so we want to be cognizant of that too so uh yeah, lots of considerations there. It's certainly really easy to understand why we want to do that. But yeah, there, there's a lot of other implications. And I've certainly worked with programs uh, that take where, where people are required uh, to come to treatment. And it's really, really frustrating. It's frustrating for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a good fit. And the dynamic with others are is challenging. And yeah, it's really
0: yeah, really it's a really good point, David. Yeah, finite resources—it's a real concern. Um, and yeah, the experience of—you know—we talk about the right to fail and the dignity of risk, but we don't want to set people up for failure. We we don't want to get on board. We don't want to be the ones to refer them to treatment that they're not ready to succeed at, and then take the wind out of their sails for the future. We want to set them up for success, even if it means. Um, even if it means taking very small steps at a time. Um, thank you all for your participation. I I know it this these have been very didactic and lots of talking. Um, we will talk about uh, safer use strategies, really practical stuff, next week, and um, talk about how to identify harm reduction targets, which is um, less conceptual and maybe a little more concrete, uh, maybe a little easier to listen to a lot of talking around and we'll talk through some more vignettes on Wednesday as well. I really appreciate your being here. We look forward to seeing you next week and hope you have a great rest of the week and weekend.